having fun. So our goal this morning is to learn a little bit about church planting networks, uh, how they work, uh, how to begin one, uh, and how to leverage uh, that for successful church planting. So Shane has forgotten more about church planting than I'll ever know. So I'm going to pray for him, and then we will jump in. Yeah, thank you. Lord, thank you so much for bringing us safely to Memphis, uh, especially after the last year. Lord, thank you that we can at least begin to be back together. Uh, Lord, we pray that as uh, Shane speaks this morning, uh, that you would give him your direction, uh, your voice, your message. Father, I thank you for the opportunity that we have uh, in our generation to continue to share the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And we thank you that uh, the efforts in church planting are not just uh, so we can say we started churches, but so that people would hear the gospel, so that more men and women and boys and girls would uh, experience the love of Jesus and, and come mm. into your kingdom. So, Father, mm. help us to be faithful in that task. And to that end, I, again, I just pray that you bless Shane and his mm. teaching this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Tom. Well, it's great to be with you. Um, a couple of things. Uh, you know, I have been a serial church planter, uh, planted uh, four churches, and have helped start two church planting networks. Uh, and I direct one now, and I did most of, most of that out of my pathology, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, trying to earn uh, righteousness uh, for myself through doing what God called me to do. I'm, I'm barely getting over it. Uh, I still have that uh, tendency. Uh, I, I planted a, a church in Greeley, Colorado. I moved there in 2000. I, I'm originally from the South. And uh, about four years after that, uh, there was a wave of church planters uh, coming west. And about three years after that, they were all tanking. Um, You know, uh, part of the problem was the model. It took a lot longer in the secular west to plant, uh, to reach people who, um, some of them hostile to Christianity. And um, what God did, and my wife Jean, and myself through that is it just broke our hearts to see the suffering of the planters and um, and you know you know every time you have to fold a church plant for the the planter and spouse marriage or family becomes unhealthy uh, it, it it's a it's a terrible um, it's a costly uh, and terrible because you not only lose congregations you lose funding you you know you it's a it's a big black eye so. God prompted me, although, you know, I've loved pastoring and preaching, but that began a process for me of entering more into what does it look like to uh, teach people what I've learned, uh, the how-tos, what does it look like to come alongside of church planters and actually uh, speak into their lives and minister to their, um, you know, because I've lived it, so Gene and I both lived it, so we, you know, we knew what people were going through. So that's kind of where I, how I've gotten where I am. I'm not an organizational genius uh, at all. <laughs> that's not one of my spiritual gifts. So to, to do a network, you need a fair amount of organization. Uh, the other thing that I want to do, I, I, I just have a pretty simple PowerPoint uh, that I'm just going to have talking points, but I want you to feel free to raise your hand, okay, because, you know, I can get going and You might think, oh, I would like to ask a question about this or that. So just feel free to do that. Just feel free to raise your hand and we'll stop and 
because I'm going to talk about the need for church planting, a slice of the, uh, the, this cultural moment and the different models that we, are, that we see as it relates to church planting. Uh, we don't want to, you know, I don't want to leave you confused or, um, you know, so yeah, and we're going to talk about some theological and missiological distinctives. Um, you know, as it relates to uh, church planting in the EPC, uh, as well as the formate, uh, formate, uh, formation of networks. So with that, uh, any, what, you have any question? Just my introduction. It, this is for you. And uh, I, I have to con make a confession from the beginning that I believe uh, that the way forward uh, in the EPC is we need to see uh, uh, a growing amount you know, of organization within our presbyteries of establishing networks. And it, I think it will become apparent. It's not the only way to do it, but it is, uh, you know, best practices over the last 20 years of other denominations and other church planning movements show uh, that net, networks are far more successful. They have far less uh, rates of failure. Uh, the planting, uh, it might be a single person, uh, female lead planter in the EPC. Megan is a great example over here. And I also want to recognize Cron and Elizabeth Gibson. Uh, they help us out nationally and um, uh, tremendously with uh, uh, counseling. Uh, Elizabeth uh, and Cron help us with our assessment center. You would be glad to know that I have been working di diligently for the EPC for six years in uh, getting a national assessment center going where we can accurately assess uh, church planters and we have a great team of assessors and a great team of counselors and then what we try to do when we send uh, church planters back to wherever they're planting uh, we try to create a network of care for the for those planters so I'm very involved in assessment and, and it's taken six years, but you've heard, you, if you've been around church planting circles, you've probably heard people talk about, we just don't have a pipeline in, in the EPC. But I would be, you know, what I would like to report is, yes, we, we have, for the first time, we have a growing pipeline. So I'm in August, Aspen Grove for the EPC is assessing uh, nine candidates in Denver in August. That's the most we've ever had at, at one assessment. And then Tom has asked me to, uh, and I don't know what he, if, he think, if he knows what he asked me, but he's asked us to do two assessments. I had to put people off. That's the other thing, not just nine candidates, but I had to say we cannot, because if you go over 10, uh, the quality of assessment goes down. And so we had to literally defer people to the first assessment in 2022, and then we have a growing crop. So next year, so the pipeline's growing. So we ought to be, you ought to be encouraged. We've been talking about church planting. We've made it an initiative of our denomination, but the, the, the nuts and bolts, you know, we didn't even have a, a washer <laughs> to begin with, but now the nuts and bolts are uh, of the particulars of how to do it bringing some expertise to the, the details of it, that's increasing, and we should be glad. Some people have been, you know, out in the hinterlands planting churches with really no support in the EPC. So, it, you know, our organization and structure is catching up uh, or developing so that we can uh, press the vision forward, so if that, if that makes sense. So, 
And, and do remember to pray for our assessment. I mean, it, it, is, a, it is a big, uh, a lot of work. Uh, a lot of work goes into the, the pre-assessment and screening of candidates and then the assessment and then the follow-up and placement. So there's, there's a lot going on uh, in that arena. So, okay. Yes? What's the date of that? Uh, it's August uh, the 9th uh, through the 12th. And it's in downtown Denver. And <clears throat> yeah, thank you, Andrew. Good to see you. Haven't seen you in a while. <laughs> yeah, good to see you. All right. Um, and remember, the ground rules here are to for you to just stop me and ask any questions. I want you really, if, we, if not, this will be me up here just running my mouth, and you'll get sleepy and you'll say, I'm going to another seminar. I'm going to go hear uh, Ligon Duncan or somebody else that has something to say. I hope, hopefully I have something to say. So uh, this is obvious, uh, church planting the need. You know, I get the question uh, as a director of church planting as I, I travel to cities. Two weeks ago I was in Phoenix talking to pot uh, potential church planters, doing demographic work in Phoenix, uh, trying to expand uh, the Aspen Grove growth into Phoenix, uh, met with some key uh, people, uh, spent time praying. But uh, if you think about just thinking in a broad, general way, biblically, uh, why do we need to plant churches? Well, the, the, the first one I would say is the Great Commission, right? Go ye therefore. And if you read the Great Commission, a lot of times it's, the focus has been on evangelism, but it says uh, make disciples and baptize. So Jesus, when he gave the Great Commission, he's telling the church the existing church, to act, it's, it's a commission to plant churches. To do the full, the full orbed ministry uh, of, 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 of the church, to go and to establish churches. So we're commanded, uh, that's one reason, we're commanded to do it. We're called to do it. Uh, and it's so easy to just get comfortable if you know, we, we all know this, uh, in a church, and, and, and pastors are so struggling with what it uh, means to pastor that congregation, it's easy to lose sight of our, 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 our collective calls to, to, to continue to go and to think about where are the unreached people? Who are the people, the, the, the marginalized in, in, our, um, in our neighborhoods and cities and towns uh, that that really don't have a church or, or, or they don't have a church that's a gospel preaching uh, and, and, and uh, a church that's doing, standing up for social justice and, 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 and ha have a vision for place and, and the people. So we're, we're to go. Uh, the other reason that we have to plant churches is just a, a demographic reason. Uh, two, th two things about demographics. One, Churches, everybody, every church was planted. God did something in somebody or some group of people and called them to start a church. This building we're standing here, that happened at some point. Churches also, just like people do, uh, my stepdad is, uh, I could get a call any minute uh, that he's going, he, he's suffering from cancer and he's very close to death. And his life on this earth is about to end. I watched a video last night, brought me to tears of a, an old um, elder in his church came over with his guitar and sang to him, and they recorded on video, sang him a hymn, 
and he could barely open his eyes, and, 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 but I could see him just acknowledging it. And, it was in, and the hymn was about uh, union, your union with Christ. So it was, it was, but just like people, we all, you know, we have a life cycle. We're born, we live, and then we die. Churches do too. And, and, and somewhere in that life cycle, uh, you know, churches can be, lose their edge or lose their effectiveness of reaching the next generation. So that's one reason uh, that we need to plant churches. The other reason, cities change. They're new neighborhoods. Uh, uh, you know, in Denver, <clears throat> there's a neighborhood uh, called Montbello. In 1990, Montbello was 92% African-American. Today, it's only 10%, and it's, uh, it's mainly Hispanic. New families that have moved there. Uh, the African-Americans moved further west into a place called Green Valley, and there's not, there's not a church for that whole Hispanic population. So demographics change, cities grow. The, one of the reasons that we need to keep planting churches is just that. I mean, that... that, that there, there's always change going on. There are unreached peoples. There are people that are underserved. And, uh, and then you know this, um, uh, church plants report more uh, growth by conversion than, you know, than, than, church, than established churches. It, just, it, it is an effective um, means of evangelism. I call it the sink and swim method. <laughs> you know, the, throw them out there. And if, they're gonna, if, if, if it's not a, a mother-daughter, which we're going to talk about in a, a little bit, uh, you know, they're going to have to reach people or they're not going to survive. So that's that shouldn't be the real motivation, right? But it is a motivation. And so they, when we plant churches, because they are in some way dependent on conversion growth, they are, the, 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 if it's a single individual or a couple, they are usually out there mixing it up in their neighborhoods and in their cities. With Jeffrey Lancaster right here in Chicago. I've watched his video. You had a crawfish uh, boil. He, uh, it came a huge thunderstorm right in the middle. It's having that on the deck and he had to move it to the garage. And literally, Jeffrey, how many people are in, in that came to the party just uh, that weren't Christians? All of them? Most of them. Most of them. Now, we ought to jump up and down because here's you know the the you know we talk about um you know foreign overseas missions but you know in post we live in post-christian and, and this is the biggest mission field and we got jeffrey we've got a church planner jeffrey lancaster right here and his dear wife kathy uh there uh in a neighborhood in chicago where they're hosting a party and they've got 60 people there and most of them are unbelievers and they're so winsome that they're, they're, they're creating space to share the gospel. So that, I mean, we ought to be just jumping up and down and planting as many churches as we can because it, it's one of the most effective ways of evangelism. Amen. And, and we just need to, thank you, amen. Uh, and, 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 so, uh, and, and so a lot of you say, well, what can I do? You can be a, a cheerleader in your presbytery and in your church and on your session or wherever, it's like we, you know, what part can we play? Some people in, you know, like in the Aspen Grove Church Planning Network, I've got a, there's a little church um, uh, in Wyoming. And I, when I say little, it is very little. And it's like the widow's might. 
but they give a little bit to the network. And I have to tell you that they're more excited about when, when you know, we get some bigger money from bigger churches, but they're more excited when they, when they see a new planter. They're always asking me, um, you, what's going on? How can I pray for this? So every church can participate in, in the whole um, <clears throat> enterprise uh, of church planning. So it means to effective, uh, let me stop. Any, the, I'm just, this is a mile flight over the top. You know all these things, but yeah, sometimes we don't want to assume them. Uh, because, uh, you know, we're about kingdom expansion, you know, through church planting. And kingdom expansion is not just evangelism. It's also, you know, I believe that it's, it's living a life of mercy uh, in, in place where you're taking care of the poor and broken. You know, the first thing I learned when I moved uh, 22 years ago away from the south uh, to Greeley, Colorado to plant a church. Scratch plant. I, you know, I have a southern accent now, but you should have heard it then. And people look at me in Greeley and say, this dude's from Mars or something like that. You know, it's like, who, who are these people? And, um, and a friend of mine who had planted a church in Seattle told me that one, I asked him, you know, he, it was a scratch plant, and I asked him how he, had, how he started the thing. You know, what, how, what did you do? And he said, well, you know, I just went around and started talking to um, individuals about the community, asking questions. And he said, I actually uh, honed it down to three questions I asked people. And I would meet with all sorts of people, garbage collectors, uh, uh, factory workers, restaurant workers, uh, bankers, all sorts of people. And here are the three questions. Uh, First question, what are the good things about, let's call the place so I don't identify the planter, Ten buck two. What are the good things about ten buck two? And people would talk about, you know, here's some things that we, this is why we live here. This is what we like about ten buck two. Second question: What are the bad things? What are the, what are the, the the broken things here in ten buck two? And you know, people love to talk about that. They'll fill up a page quickly. It's like this, 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 this. And then his third question was, and he always made, a, made um, uh, careful <clears throat> uh, to not uh, make people feel like he was trying to get them to come to his church or proselytizing him, because he was just trying to get information about Timbuktu. He would say, I'm not recruiting you to a church. Uh, I am a pastor uh, starting a new church. But if you had to say... Uh, uh, or describe what kind of church would meet the needs here in Timbuktu, say today and for the next 20 years, how would you describe that church? So I took my friend's three questions and moved my young family in our minivan towing our pop-up camper, which quit once we crossed the Colorado line. And I told, I pu- it pulled over, I mean, it was 102 degrees in July and it just overheated and, and it, the brakes locked up and I, managed to get it off the road and I said, I said that my oldest son was sitting right on the second seat behind me and, and uh, it's probably like a fourth grader. And I said, children, you need to pray. And he goes, what do you think we're doing? <laughs> I'll never forget it. Like, yeah, it's like dad being the pastor, you need to pray. What do you think we're doing? Um, 
I get to Greeley and I start asking, you know, get settled a little bit and then start uh, asking uh, the questions. It was obviously that God had called me to Greeley because my realtor, I could tell, I, he, took, he said he'd never ever been compelled to take clients out to dinner, but he took us out to dinner and asked me what I did. And he was an Hispanic man and uh, I told him and he said, what's that? And so it started a conversation with him about the gospel. A year later, he was converted. And, but, but even before then, he knew I needed to connect to people, and he, he, was, he, he knew everybody in Greeley. So he, I, he called people and said, i got this friend who's trying to learn about Greeley. He, he's a pastor, but he's not trying to get you to come to his church. But, so, I mean, he gave me lists of names. And so I just started calling him, and I would say, I'm, hey, I'm Shane's son. I'm new to Greeley, I'm trying to learn about, and I hear that you know more about marketing. <laughs> and when you tell somebody they know more about something, you know, their ears perk up. And I promise, I'd say, you know, I'd, I'll meet you where, I would love to meet with you and ask you a couple of questions. And I promise not to take more than 15 minutes of your time. And I always did, even if they wanted to talk more, I would say, you know, I want to respect your time and I'd leave it at 15 minutes. And I asked the three questions. One, what, what are the good things about Greeley? And I, you know, I, and I was taking notes because I wanted to know. I, 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 was dis, I was learning about Greeley. Second thing, what are the bad things about Greeley? People blurted them out, you know. The racial division, the, the deplorable schools, the this, the that, the broken kids, the gangs in downtown, all of it. And I took notes. And then I, the third question, uh, if you had to say, and I'm not recruiting to you at the church, if you had to say what kind of church would meet the needs of the city as they exist today and say for the next 20 years, how would you describe that? Ten, maybe 20 people into it, I cannot tell you how many people, after they would describe the, the, the broken things, they would say, I didn't know the church cared about what really matters. And I heard it over and over and over again. I didn't know the church. They just care. The church just cares about themselves. They don't care about that. And they're not doing anything about it anyway. And um, the tenth person that said that, it was so convicting. I, I, I literally, uh, you know, it was like um, the second baptism of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and, and that I had to, I was like, that's right. And I knew right then if I was going to, if we were going to plant a church in Greeley, Colorado, that we had to, and in secular culture, you have to win the right to talk about the gospel, okay? In other words, you can't just go in there with a pre, you know, let me share with you the plan of salvation, because they've, they've heard that before, they've largely rejected it, but when you begin to love broken things um, in ways uh, that other people aren't, and you're willing to get your hands messy, then over time they'll say, to, okay, tell me about the gospel. And I'll give you one example, which I didn't even intend to, you know, I'm off my outline. We'll get, I'll go to the next thing in just a second. But it's important to understand that there was a, a man. And so we, we started renting an old um, abandoned church building near the University of Northern Colorado. Uh, you know, I was doing small groups. I was meeting people and we launched worship. And then an old historic building in downtown Greeley, uh, right by the Lincoln Park in the old historic downtown, came, I saw a, a sign on it for sale. And um, 
I didn't know, I'd, I'd raise money, uh, funding for the church plant. Didn't feel like I could raise money to, to buy a building. But I, I, in, I called the number, took a tour of the building, and then uh, Shally asked, how much, how much is this building? And when he, the, the, it was so low. And they said, we really want to see another church. We do not want this to become something else. We want it to be a church. And the number was so low, I had to not act surprised. You know, I had to try to keep a poker face like. And so here's the story, though. The, there was a man, very prominent man. He has a, a, a winery in the Napa Valley, which I won't name the winery because I don't want to identify the man. He had a Learjet at the Well County Airport in Greeley. Uh, he had bought up a lot of the old buildings because the downtown had been largely abandoned. There's a meatpacking plant nearby. People, there's a lot of brokenness, homelessness, all the, all the above in downtown. So I'm, I, I realized he had bought a lot of the buildings. Somebody said, you ought to talk to him before you uh, move forward with the idea of purchasing buildings. So I got together with him. We met for lunch. I, you know, I, I had not met him. We talked. I was a little bit intimidated. Um, and um, we talked for a bit. And, um, you know, I asked him about the building. He said, yeah, I think that'd be a good thing for you to do is to buy the building. And, uh, and, um, and then he said, I have a question for you. He's an older man. He, he just looked, I didn't know how Westerners operated. You know, in, so, in the South, you, you can despise people, but you have to act like you really like them. You know, it's like, but not in the West. They just tell you, they just say what they, they just tell you what they, and I was like, it was like shocking. He, he goes, what's going to make your church different than all these other churches around here? And this is coming from a guy who had already told me he didn't believe. And I said, well, that's a great question. And um, I said, you know, I gave him a little history of the church since the Scopes trial and how, uh, you know, the reason the church was given tax-exempt status is back when they knew that the church existed to pour value into the community. And I said, I'd, and I'd already done the questions. This is, you know, I'd already had the conviction that we've got to uh, start a church that serves the community in its broken places. And so... Um, I, you know, I told him, I said, I, you know, I don't know how we'll be different and I don't want to disparage any church, but I, I, our vision is to serve this city. And, uh, and, I, and one of the things I told him is the church has been uh, characterized by the philosophy of existentialism. And he said, what's that? And I said, well, it's basically me and mine here and now. Wow. The church is about itself. It's lost a vision for how, why it exists for the people around it and for place and for neighborhoods and for, uh, for all the above. And, and he's listening. And we, you know, we run out of things to talk about. We're eating and it's kind of quiet. I'm feeling a little uncomfortable. And he goes, you know that existentialism you were talking about a little bit ago? And I nodded. And he said, that's characterized my whole life. And words stuck on the tip of my tongue. I wanted to say, his name's Bob. I want to say, Bob, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, but I couldn't do it. I, it just wouldn't come up. I was intimidated by his wealth. And it was really a good thing that I didn't. Because we started a nonprofit that ministered to um, gang kids, basically. Uh, we mentored and tutored them. Tutored them. We, uh, we got involved in Rebuilt Place. We started, uh, repair, we, we became the repairers of the breach, as Isaiah said. And uh, fast forward seven years later, 
Uh, our nonprofit, we had a major funder pull out to fund something else, and so we were suffering. We, I didn't know how we were going to pay the director. By this time, we had a director and keep the thing going. And I was um, probably, really, to be honest, anxious and uh, frustrated and um, probably exhausted. And, you know, and, and, and I did remember I need to pray about this, but that was kind of the, somewhere down the list. I pray about it. You know, it's like, okay. And I, just when I finished praying, I'm just on my computer looking at things, and I, I'm looking at uh, foundations. I, who could we ask for money? And I see a foundation by the man that I had the conversation with. And, and, it, and the, the purpose of the foundation, which again, I want to reveal the foundation, it said uh, to uh, um, help fund programs that take care of Well County's troubled youth. And I was like, why did I not know this? So I emailed him. This is seven years from the initial conversation. We sit at the, it, he's sitting at the exact same table at the restaurant seven years before. I walk in, I sit down. And he's, he, he looks over his menu, and it's approaching Easter, and he, the, his first line was, you know, Shane, I don't believe in the resurrection. And I just read N.T. Wright's great book, on the, and so I had a great historical argument for the resurrection, and I looked right at him and then said, and Bob, you know that I do. And he literally, I detected um, emotion. His chin quivered, and he said, I, you do. It's apparent by the way. So that's the point. The point is just this. In, in a growing secular culture, um, which is that we have to win the right through the, the deeds of love and mercy and loving in ways all, all people everywhere that we're called to do that so that we create space that we can, like in this situation, that I can actually share the gospel. It, it creates uh, space to, uh, to share the gospel with the people uh, whom you're called to minister. So, something happened. I don't know what's going on. Okay. Any comments, questions? I like telling stories. Yes, Kron. Your experience when a local church maybe doesn't have the, the DNA of church planting, but when they begin to be invested or how do you get the local church, realizing it's the Holy Spirit's work, but the human part there, how do you get them to be invested in what do you see the benefit to the local church? Like that little church, when they begin to see that they can influence the world that way. <clears throat> That's a great question. Do you all hear Kron's question? He, he, he's asking how do you get an, a, a, a local church or an established church to uh, uh, get on the bandwagon with church planning, essentially. And then what's the benefit to them? And what, yeah. How does, it, how does it affect them when they suddenly see it? Right, right. Good. Uh, so, uh, this sounds like the uh, Sunday... Let me throw out something. We've got one church that, ex that is experimenting with something they're calling replanting. Mm-hmm. And really are, are attempting to change their older DNA and taking over the park that's across the street and doing parties and different things. 
Right. It, it you, normally comes under the category of revitalization, but there are churches, you know, I mean, even, you know, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Jack Miller's Outgrowing the Ingrown Church, um, which is a great book, but all churches have a life cycle. I, even in Greeley, the church that I'm talking about, we, you know, you, you know, 10 years later, I was like, I'm not talking to anybody about the gospel anymore. I'm just running the church. I've got too much, you know, it's, and, 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 you know, it's, it just, the, the, the gospel is centrifugal. The tendency of the church is to become centripetal. It just is. I mean, it just, you have so much to take care of. And it, so, so Kron's question, I, this sounds um, trite, but I really mean it. You know, part of the reason of a network uh, is prayer. I pray for churches that the wind of the Spirit would blow and they would get a fresh vision of their importance and how they can be involved in reaching people. Uh, uh, the second thing is that Presbytery, I tell, I, t we always have church planners who are, you know, on the, uh, like, Jeffrey's stories and, 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 you know, and that serves to the, like, wow, we could, you know, church, churches, wow, we could be, uh, doing this, or we could play a part in helping support this church planter. We also have what we call in the Aspen Grove a, a triad model. So the and I'm I'm jumping ahead a little bit just to answer the question, but which we'll get to this. The um, the triad model is essentially a church plant is normally funded a third from a network or presbytery, and these are you know these numbers are not exact, but it's a way to understand it a third from their own individual support raising, and a third from uh, geographically interested churches. And so we, and, and this is answering the second part of Kron's question, what we do is we, um, I, you know, I just, we just started a church in western Kansas in a one-horse town. And I need to tell you that God, I did a baptism of a, a, a doctor's son whose mother, uh, elderly mother and father are in the new church plant. And he's like, can you, uh, can y'all, can you, there's no reformed evangelical church of all places in Salina, Kansas. Could Aspen Grove start a church? And so, so the Holy Spirit doesn't stop at state lines or, <laughs> or presbytery boundaries. It just, through church planning, it, the, it grows. So we, you know, we're sharing these things uh, all the time at our presbytery meetings. And what I did, like in Kansas, what I've done is I've gotten three churches, and they're, they're far apart. And, but one of them is across in another presbytery. And I've got them, I've got the pastor to come preach there once before you actually call the planter. And, and um, so when they have hands on that much, that they're, they're given some money, and they're praying for the, the church planter. I'm always coaching church planters to speak at the, your funding church's missions conferences be available. They be, that's a way that churches begin to catch the wind of what's happening in church planning. I'm sure there are other ways, but those are the, the basic ways uh, that I see. So let's move, let's move forward a little bit and talk about... Um, uh, church planting models. Now, this, um, there are probably other models, but these are the main ones. And in, in changing culture, and this is what I want you to hear, in changing culture and with, um, you know, Christendom 
uh, on the decline. Uh, and it, when Christendom and churches is on the decline, you also know what's on the decline money. There's less money being given. It, it, every study shows that also that the new generation, Gen X and et cetera, uh, and it, I experienced that because the last church I planted is in downtown Denver and it's full of a lot of young people. And they spend all their money on uh, the latest hiking gear and the latest uh, outdoor gadget and, and they don't tithe. I mean, it, it, they just don't. And so, there, it, so what we have, uh, so there's a growing needs for different models. So a scratch model is essentially you raise your money, just like me going to Greeley, and you parachute into a place and you, it's just, you know, uh, it, it's, it's trusting God and, <clears throat> and in, in doing assessment, there's some people that just can't do the scratch model, but can still plant churches. But, and we're still doing the scratch model. So it's, it's one model. And then the, <clears throat> the mother-daughter model. It's a very uh, effective model. Uh, uh, you know, the natural reproduction process uh, of a church is to have a baby. Uh, although some churches want to grow bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and have more and more and more and more, more programs. And a lot of times that can cater to uh, a uh, consumer. Uh, let me consume Christianity and our family feel good and, you know, all those things. And those things are not all bad, but when it gets to the point that you're just growing bigger and bigger and bigger, and uh, you know when when it, the pastor gets exhausted or gets in trouble or something, there's going to be a big crash, you know. And and so it's I think mother daughter is important to always uh, from the beginning or a pastor or session have some vision for how can we reproduce ourselves in a neighborhood. Uh, near us that's uh, underserved um, or where we have people driving in long distances past their neighbors that they don't even know to consume our church. <laughs> you know, how do, we, how do we reverse that and get them living around their neighbors and doing church in place? COVID has um, opened the, the church's eyes on some of this, which I'm not going to talk about, right? So there's a mother-daughter. Mother-daughters uh, tend to be um, Good in that there's structure, there's leadership in the mother church that can help the planter in, in the beginning of the church plant, but it, they also have some particular pitfalls. What would you think? What do you think a pitfall of a daughter church could be? They get bored of the plant and go back to the mother. What? Like the people who are working would turn around and go. Exactly. A couple of weeks in and go, yeah, and go back home. It happens all the time. And so I have to coach, you know, one of the parts I do is coaching churches. If you're going to start a daughter church, don't do this. Because uh, just what you said is true. What happens, they get a year into this family. So oh, I'm so excited about the new church plan. I love our new planter. And we're so excited about the. Well, a year later, there, there's no uh, youth group here. And, you know, I liked, uh, you know, brother so-and-so's preaching, you know, boop, they're gone, you know, they, you know. And so that's one tendency in a, in, in a daughter church. The other tendency is you just have first church east. In other words, it's just a hive off of a group of people that just kind of come into a neighborhood. And, it, and then what happens, it takes away that, that kind of sink or swim thing I'm saying where, the church is, de is, is dependent on growth by reaching the unreached, I mean, the people that are not reached. 
and, and daughter churches can can just become a, a hive off where they just go and do the, the, what the mother church was doing. It's just first church east, and it actually doesn't. Uh, they, they're already um, ingrown from almost the beginning. There's not this necessity of, of connecting with it. All that being said, what I always do is, and we've got an example right now of a mother-daughter plant. I coach the mother uh, plant about here are the pitfalls. And, I, and, and then a lot of times I put the brakes on a bit. So when the, the church planner is initially worshiping at the mother uh, church, it's like, how do you live like Gideon? And get the people that are going to stick with you and not the people that are going to come back because you don't have a youth group in a year. And how do you tell them what they're really getting into so that they really understand it? And I usually do that for the planter. And for, I go and speak. And, I, I, and I, the first thing I say is all you, all you think you want to be part of this, you really don't. Here's why. Hey, go ahead, Tom. Uh, green trees, that's all we do is mother mm-hmm. We're on our seventh one. And what's been the key to it, I think, is leadership in the mother church is on the same page. They understand how they're going to do it. They, they stick with it. So we have avoided like people going back and forth or people going out and trying it out and then coming back. Not, it hasn't been absent that, mm-hmm. but fundamentally laying the groundwork, bringing the church plans in ahead of time, letting them, you know, folks feel if they can resonate with them. Or a particular target area where we have people that are already in those neighborhoods. So there has to be a lot of strategic work done up front Right. Regard to be successful, but if you do that work, then right. it ends up. Every church we've ever planted, we've been better off having the plant. We've grown, our our budgets grown, our membership. God just multiplies His kingdom, and I think our calling as leaders is to just be wise in the way we the way we go about it. Mm-hmm. Great. So thank you, Tom. The you know just the the. The, he's talking about the necessary vision and leadership in the uh, in the mother church, and I have seen examples of where there's not the nest. They don't. The mother church really doesn't know what they're getting into, and and how they're going to take care of it, and how how they're going to negotiate, you know, certain potential pitfalls, like uh, you know, and then you you know you you sometimes you have a culture of fear. It's like if we let go of these people, we're going to, you know, the kind of thing. But w- what Tom attests to is the opposite is, is usually what you see. You know, you sacrifice and you let some people go and, and God blesses that. It, the, it helps your congregation catch the vision of why you exist. Um, a few other things uh, about mother-daughter is part of what I do when I kind of help coach that is the uh, help You've got to define terms like, is it okay for the church planner to raise money uh, from individuals in your congregation? Well, that's got to be defined. Some churches, it's like, yes, it's, it's, you can go for anybody you want, but, uh, uh, or you can't. You've got to raise money outside. So that's, there's things that have to be negotiated and defined up front, and those have to be written down. Or the devil, <laughs> the devil's, he, he's a schemer, right? So he knows how to get in the middle of it. So you've got to define that and you've got, okay, uh, can uh, the church planner recruit staff from your congregation? 
Uh, if so, which ones? Are any of them off limits? Can they take your best music director? Because they don't like the so-and-so. You know, those, that has to be negotiated on the front end. Okay, mother, daughter, multi-ethnic. Um, Richard Reeves was just in here and walked out. He does downtown church, he and Michael Davis. It's one of the better examples of a multi-ethnic and intentionally multi-ethnic uh, church plant. And multi-ethnic church plants, they're growing numbers. Uh, the last uh, three years, Aspen Grove assessing for the EPC, we, we have more and more candidates that are coming with it to uh, plant intentionally multi-ethnic uh, congregations. We actually had one yesterday, right? We did, we, the, if I look a little weary, we ran an all-day assessment, at what's what we call a mini-assessment yesterday, and one of the couples, that's what they're looking to do. And uh, without getting into the, the multi-ethnic uh, church movement, it's so vital because, as you know, the racial, racial, racial and political divisions of our country that are up front and center, the multi-ethnic church, where brothers and sisters in Christ of different races are worshiping together and, and sharing life and sharing all of life, the, the body of Christ, they can speak into the culture in ways that, that just an ethnic church cannot. And um, it, it's, um, so we, we have growing numbers of multi-ethnic, that, so that's a model. But one of the things I would say, you, can, you can't just uh, decide one day you're gonna be multi-ethnic. That might happen, but there has to be intention, uh, intentionality from the beginning. You've got to say this is, and you, you've got to think critically about staffing. There's, and we, and if if you want, um, you know, I know uh, Richard and Michael actually coach people. You know, one of the things we do, we assign church planning coaches, Aspen Grove, but they, um, because they've walked this for, I think, nine years now. Uh, they know the pitfalls, they're able to coach uh, uh, people that feel called and to say, watch out for this, this is what you need to be doing now, this is what you need to think about here, you know, that sort of thing. So multi-ethnic, uh, we have, yes? With the multi-ethnic, is that its own category or a subcategory of scratch and mother daughter? <laughs> we have engineers in the room, no. <laughs> Yes, and all the above. It can be you could you could have a scratch multi-ethnic church and uh, all the above. I mean, it, it you know the, the they're not standalone models. So, uh, for example, e bivocational, a bivocational church plant doesn't have to be a house church. You just that's what you tend to see these days. But yeah, it does. Yeah. So, did that answer? Yes. It's yes and yes. Yeah, the, yeah, yes and yes, yeah. Um, so the, the, there are also ethnic-specific uh, church plants, uh, you know, that are, uh, typically focus, like, say, the, the ha ha Haitian refugee community, or uh, we got a growing uh, Sudanese population in, uh, in Denver that feel called to plant among this very specific um, a group of people. And, and we're still also planting, uh, uh, sending planters that they're uh, African-American planters, that their intent is not to be multi-ethnic uh, or cross-cultural. We're, we're planting a, a black congregation. And that's great. You know, so there, there's no really right or wrong model. So ethnic specific. Uh, here's one that is, uh, we just, Asperger, we just uh, placed 
our first bivocational church planter in Salt Lake City. And he is a coffee entrepreneur. He has uh, three um, um, retail shops and they grind and sell coffee. It, the coffee's really good. If you want to search, uh, his, the name of his company is La Barba, La, uh, the beard in Spanish, La Barba. Uh, I support church planting because now I don't buy coffee at uh, Safeway in Denver. I, uh, I get shipped every, I get the beans from La Barba every month. And sometimes I, if I drink a lot, extra amount of coffee that, that month, I run out before they get there. But they're really good. Uh, and so they're doing a bivocational work. And, you know, in a place like Salt Lake and a growing secular culture, bivocational approach is uh, an excellent approach because of the, the whole uh, funding. Uh, in other words, he has a business. The other reason it works really well is, you know, a lot of time in secular culture, if you come in and say, they say, what do you do? You know, your, your kids are out biking on the street and you say, well, I'm a church planner. And it's like, uh, I, you just announced you're from Saturn and uh, you have rings around your head and they, they, they're like, oh, he has the cooties. I'm not going around this person. But when you have a job that is actually employing people in the community, you're legit. And, it, and, and that's a big deal. This idea of we're going to go over here and we're going to, you know, I, anyway, I could go off here, but uh, we're going to win, uh, you know, we're going to win this area and nobody even has any affinity for the area. It's like we're going to mine uh, the people's souls for Jesus, you know, and evangelicals have that kind of idea sometimes. Rather than we're going to, what I just described at the beginning, like in Greeley, that we're going to go in and we're going to figure out the broken places and we're going to love this place and we're going to love its sidewalks and we're going to love the flowers and we're going to take care of the trees and we're going to take care of the broken people and we're going to, we're going to uh, sing a song of the gospel. And, 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 and people are going to hear it because the Holy Spirit's promised to do that. So, so, so what they're doing, Thomas and Amy uh, Warmath, uh, dear people, I love them. Uh, and uh, they're, they're doing their coffee company and the, every day that they're working in the retail shop, they, they not only are taking care of their employees and they're not just trying to hire Christian employees, they, they, they hire good employees. And they, they, so they begin to be taking care of them and getting to know their stories. It becomes a, a context where they're interacting in, in gospel conversations with uh, with the people they employ and they treat them right and they pay them right and they run it with you know you, you know in a in a, a in a Christian manner in the way that they are fair and deal with people they also because they're doing retail and in um, not only retail but selling in the grocery stores and those sorts of things they're interacting with all sorts of people so their model they don't want to ever have a location church there's a they're going to be a bivocational house church that is pretty specific to their neighborhood. They're already gathering people and they, they're having a lot of non-Christians that are curious coming around. So bivocational house church or just bivocational. And the, the other one I'll talk about is modified bivocational. We have a number of people. So if you think about the stages, then stop me again. If I'm just going, if you need to ask a question about some term or what I'm saying. So, um, Church planning, um, you know, practitioners and gurus talk about the seven stages of church planting, which I won't throw them up here and bore you. If you want the seven stages and read about them, you can email me and I'll send you the, 
I'll send you the document. But the, the first uh, stages are, uh, you know, that we miss are, are getting to know the neighborhood, which you heard me talk about, praying, prayer walking the neighborhood, uh, you know, getting a, 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 a settling and getting a, a feel for the neighborhood. But then you enter into uh, a, some form of the gathering phase. So modified bivocational church planting is, if you, if you raise a lot of money to plant a church, you know, in the third, third, third uh, way I described, it's a smart approach because in the first, basically the first three phases of church planting, you're praying and you're beginning small groups and you're gathering. And if you have a, so if you have a job where it's enhancing that and also making money and you're not spending up your church planting budget, you can, you can, you can press the money that you raise forward. So at the time, so the time that you're actually uh, needing the money when you start, um, you know, services need to add staff that you have more money spent. It's just a it's a wise approach, and um, and so I've got a, I've got a planner right now that's going to do that approach. But he doesn't feel called to always be bivocational. Some people do, and that's okay. Uh, but but he was like, I don't know, you know. He wants like a, a large on-ramp uh, so that he can do it in a kind of a normal fashion that the clock is not ticking from the day he begins. He's working, he, 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 did, he is raising funds, uh, but, um, but yeah, but he's gonna, he's gonna wait and begin to spend the budget uh, once a group is gathered and he needs to spend more time in pastoring in Elizabeth. You're going to have to explain it because I'm always confused. I, I, so, she's asking about the co-vocational model, so go ahead. So we, we kind of planted bivocationally, and it was a job to be able to not rewrite. There's a new model out there that's co-vocational that you are intentionally having a job to then be in the world and, and be able to relate Christ in the context. So you're doing it to help and connect to the community. So it's a new word out there that mm -hmm. like, Christians doing that, and that's what the war masks are doing. Mm -hmm. Puts you in the context of the world to be intentionally connected to the lost. Right. Whereas my generation, our generation, was more get the jobs so you don't have to worry about support. And it's a big difference. Yeah. There's a big difference yeah. about what kind of job you're getting. Um, right. Tom. Christian Kreider in Austin, mm. Texas is the perfect example of that mm -hmm. with the Lazarus Brewing Company. Um, different ethnic communities look at bivocational differently. It's very important when we planted in Ferguson this last year that that pastor be full-time. He's been bivocational all his life, but to be able to be full-time is actually in that community a sign of respect and a sign of that, that the church is really invested in the community. So you got, mm -hmm. you got to do your demographics. You got right. to do your homework. Right. Find out what's going to work best. Right. But the younger generation, generally speaking, um, you're exactly dead on 100% right. Uh, more and more people, uh, you know, coming, uh, that's a great point, Tom, and that, that's true. I'm, uh, I'm the token white member of a, like an 85 to 90-year-old 
uh, African American Ministerial Association in Denver, which I feel honored to be a part. Uh, I take it on the chin on a regular basis, uh, but it, it's been so um, informative. And one of the things, of course, you know, following up with what Tom said, that I have discovered that many of the African American pastors, male or female, they have other jobs because they, you know, the, there are uh, exceptions with big congregations, but many of them are small neighborhood congregations where they all have a job. But it would not be like uh, the job, their job may not have an interface so much so with how they're actually interacting with people for the purpose, purposes of evangelism. And church is just a job that they do because they have to, you know. And there's, there's a difference, and we always want to uh, coach our planters, you know, if you're going to do a mod modified bivocation or, or bivocational, it needs to, the vocation itself, uh, you need to kill two birds with one stone. You don't need to get a vocation where you're behind a computer and you're in an office in your house all day, every day. Guess what? You're not going to plant the church if you do that, you know. So, so there has to be uh, wisdom brought uh, to the table on that. So any questions about um, models? Karan. Related, I suppose, but like, remember our first plan? Uh, I forget how much we had to raise back in uh, 02, but it was somewhere close to half a million dollars mm -hmm. across three and a half-ish years outside of Rochester, New York. Um, <laughs> as you're, you've got wars and lots of waters, how are you seeing that you know all the the, the, the challenges to fund our churches because the costs of doing that are just more and more and more? How is that? Well, uh, the, I, I alluded to it. The the available funds because of the decline of the church, and then um, overall in numbers and conversions and that sort of thing, and then you 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 superimpose onto that that millennials, whatever designation, gen, whatever we're at now. You know, they, it shows they don't give, they don't tithe. So, so there is a crisis of, you know, uh, that forces us in. I'm sorry that did that. Let me go back. Let's see. Mm -hmm. um, it forces us into thinking about creative models that are going to help us uh, continue to plant churches with uh, reduced funding. Uh, so, yes, and, 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 and we have to do that. And, you know, and we live in different regions of the country. The West is, uh, people don't get this. I mean, you, you move, you go, what, the, the far, farther west you go and the farther north you go, the more secular. And it, it might not even be post-Christian, it was never Christian. And it really takes a lot of time. There are no people that I know that have planted reformed evangelical churches uh, in the West that have been self-sustaining in, it takes at least seven years. And that's with the good planter. So then how do you fund a church plant that long? So we have to coach people in how they do that. And, 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 and more and more, that's going to be the case. So we, we have to, you know, I, I do think there's been in reform circles too, because I speak at seminaries, I recruit church planters at seminaries. And I was in a panel discussion at Westminster and felt a little intimidated. I should have been, I guess. But there was a large pushback uh, from some of the faculty, <laughs> I just have to say, and some, you know, on the whole idea of, 
uh, bivocational planting. And you know, uh, and, and the you know, and the pushback, you know, is the the way we've always done it. Part of it was, you know, um, you know, seminary education, et cetera, et cetera, which we believe that people need to be credentialed. But there's some dynamics in play. The other, the other thing, the you know, what we face, and we're doing lots of work in um, uh, poor neighborhoods and and reaching uh, ethnic people who can't leave their jobs or their family in order to go to seminary. So we have to, we have to figure out working with our head of our uh, credentialing committee at Presbytery I'm good friends with, and we do everything we can to get uh, a person credentialed. But we also make use of the whole thing in the EPC, which is, uh, I spent some time in the PCA and in, in, in the church planning circles, we didn't have this, but we, we can, uh, the whole commissioned elder, a person that's ordained uh, as a ruling elder can be commissioned as a pastor. So while some we could, and they could, when they're commissioned as a pastor, they can preach and do the sacraments. So we make sure they have oversight. We co- we commission them, and we have a plan for them if they have to keep working of how they, over time they can get their proper credentialing and then you know be ordained as a teaching elder. But you, the point being, we've got to be creative, especially if we want. Go ahead, Megan. I, I'll, uh, yeah. I just see missing from your list um, a conversation about multi-site or family and churches model. Is that because, you know, is that an, an, an intentional, you know, are you seeing that that model isn't working or is that just not within the EPC very much? Or? Right. Um, her question is about multi, multi-site. Multi-site or family and churches model, multi-church mm-hmm. I think that they can be very effective. I, I just don't, I mean, w- when I think about church planting, I see multi-site is the expansion of an existing church. And obviously uh, done uh, well, it can, just like church planting, can, can reach new people in the new site. But they do have a propensity, like in a mother-daughter, to become just a hive of often a new location, the same people. And, and it, it can become, it can become, it's not in all cases consumeristic, but it's really not church planting. It, it's like church expansion of a local, uh, of a local church. So that's why I didn't have that up there. But, you know, we do uh, and have um, assessed, um, you know, there's some similarity. Um, let me turn this thing. My phone's buzzing up here. The, um, there's some similarity uh, between a mother-daughter uh, church uh, planting and someone that, say, from a, a church is going to go and do another site. So uh, two years ago, we assessed for a, a, a large EPC church uh, a, a, a site pastor. They wanted to know if he had and the couple had the goods to actually... To, do, to pull it off, and I said, and they said, "Could you do this?" And I said, "Well, it's very much like similar to what we do if we're if we're assessing someone who's going to do a daughter plant, you know." And we bring a speaking of assessment, we bring expertise because of years of doing it the wrong way and a school of hard knocks and getting beaten in the head with a sledgehammer, you know, and for doing it the wrong way and. We've learned a lot about the kind of uh, personality profiles and calling. You know, some scratch planters are not good mother-daughter planters. And we're able to say you're, you're not going to be able to do that. You're not going to get along, you know, you know you're, because of who you are. 
you're going to want to do your own thing and don't you know you're going to get so fed up with the kind of but some people are just you know, cut out to do mother daughter so again one of the things I can, I'm telling you is avail yourselves of assessment uh, I mean we need to plant churches but we don't need to get so excited about it we start throwing people left and right you know out there go plant yay we got Johnny Bob here wants to plant church hallelujah you know let's pray for him prayer here go give him you know, and then t three years later, there's things about Billy Bob that w were never detected. We didn't, you know, what organization spends uh, half a million dollars over a course of six years with no quality control? In other words, we've got to adopt in, uh, as a denomination, and we're growing in this, but, and also as presbyteries and also as churches, uh, the, the necessity of assessment and, and follow through with, with church planters. It's just imperative that we do that. It's, it's ludicrous to think that we would try, and that does, it's not foolproof. Could you talk about what goes on with assessment? I'll do that in a little bit. Especially if a funding issue is taken away and so the entrepreneurial characteristic is necessary, what exactly is the assessment for? So I, I had a hard time hearing you. Right. So Yeah, that's a good good question. And, and like I said, some we, we know where they're uh, or where they think they're going. So we know people that I mean, we know the profile that would be a better scratch planter. We also know people, you know, uh, above like Christian Kreider. They're not, I, you know, I always tell Christian, he's the guy that does Lazarus Brewing, and he's he started two house churches out of that, and you know, and 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 I and I always talk to Christian. I pick at him and say, you know, you're Christian. Your models are not reproducible because you're, you're not reproducible. <laughs> there, there, there are not many people like you that do that. You, you, you're a hard-charging entrepreneur, and you can run a big bi uh, business just opening second side of the brewery. You know, I was down there uh, in March. I mean, even before the kind of uh, fading of COVID, there were people everywhere. And there they're opening their second location, and he's doing the house church, and I worship with him at the house church. and met with some of his leaders and and I was like you know some people can do that I mean uh, but there are others who can't so just because you're bivocational it's not actually taking away entrepreneur sometimes it's actually adding to it so what the, your question what we do on our assessment which I'm jumping ahead but we we say the purpose of uh, the Ask Grove assessment which it really is for the EPC because a lot of these planters are going to other presbyteries all over the country from the West Coast to the East Coast, not necessarily right uh, in, within our, the Presbytery of the West. So we say our, our, our mission is to assess a, uh, a diversity of church planters for a diverse, diverse uh, church planting context in North America. So on our team, uh, you know, we have a... a, a a female, uh, successful female church planter who is in eco. But we've got to be able to assess female church planters who feel called to plant churches. 
So we have candidates coming in the EPC. They're, they're, they're female and they feel called to plant a church. And so how would we be able to assess that if we don't have diversity on our assessment team? So Richard said, we, we assess people like yesterday in a mini assessment that are called to plant multi, uh, multi uh, across ethnic or multicultural or multi-ethnic church. We need the best uh, uh, assessors who, have, uh, who know how to do that and know how to assess for it. Same thing with bivocational. So, you know, Christian does help us. If we have a lot of people that are looking and they're growing numbers of young people who want to do this, we have, we have people on our uh, assessment team that understand uh, bivocational planting. So that's, that's what we do. We, we try to have a, a diverse assessment team that can assess uh, for uh, an array of diverse uh, settings. Uh, otherwise, we, we, you know, you know, there are just some things that I, I know a lot of things. You most learn from the sledgehammer. Uh, but there's some things I just don't know and I have an experience. Like what could this person actually pull off this business and uh, begin this church? Christian is better able to speak into that because he's done it. I haven't done that. I never started a business and I've started a lot of things. But <laughs> uh, most of them are related to fishing. But um, uh, so, did that answer your question exactly? Probably not. Well, I think what I'd add to that is that entrepreneurial is not the only characteristic of a church planner. You know, and so when you talk about the other things you're assessing for, that it's not just about whether or not you can run a business or get people to give money. Yeah, there's a lot. Yeah, good, po good point. Uh, the, you know, sometimes... Uh, to send a person with large entrepreneurial gifts who, um, with great visionizing com uh, compassion and they're like chomping at the bits to get out there, we have to be careful to put them in mother-daughter context. I've already referred to that. Because they're so visionary and so called to do what they're called to do that they're probably not good fits as a, so the, the entrepreneurial need in a mother-daughter church because their existing structures goes down. And there are certain people, we do the DISC profile and assessment. If you have uh, a, a, some C compliant, we, we look at that strongly uh, for people going to do mother-daughter. So, so yeah, we, we, we're always trying to make, make sure that our assessment is uh, taking into consideration the context that they'll be planting. And, you know, I, I'll give you an example. Two years ago, I told the guys, like, this is not going to happen. Uh, the, the, the pastor of the church that sent him wanted him to do a site of the church, and I've got to be careful. <laughs> and I said, in about two years, you're going to be bored stiff, because everybody, it's not just me saying it, it's the, the assessment team is like, you are called to plant a church. And, you know, and we see it and and but he went and he did uh, what uh, went and did a site. And he, he called me two months ago and said, guess what? I, I just I can't do this anymore. I, I've got to go plant church. And I said, well, you got a good experience for two years. <laughs> we told you that. And, and, and the, by God's grace, that's what he's doing. You know, they, I, I spent time with him uh, two months ago. So. So, yeah. So. Yeah. What we're asking and trying to identify uh, is there fabric in their life to sustain the stress 
church of the work of church planting so that uh, you know one of the things we talk about is we don't want to sacrifice a family or marriage at all for church planting so the, the speak up a little so the people over here can the, the assessment process certainly there's the entrepreneurial thing from the start is to drive all that but we're we're asking a, a bit of kind of a 360 picture of who they are, can they, you know, relational dynamics, history, all kinds of stuff with a view toward wanting to be sure they can thrive. And even within that, asking, um, hey, here's what, when we put out recommendations at the end, it can be, hey, we, we think you can do it, but we recommend you continue counseling, we think you need this kind of coaching. Because our aim isn't just to ask, can they plant? Our aim is to ask, can they plant? But what do they need to thrive as sons and daughters of the, of the Lord as they plant? That's what we're, is that fair, Jane? That, that's great. Tom, are you going to piggyback or go ahead? Yeah, this is going to be, this is going to be a brilliant statement. Okay, so you want to go and write this down. Okay. Assessment where, where? is your friend. If, if Shane and I were the kings of the EBC, we would not let anybody plant a church without going through assessment. Now, we're not kings of the EBC, and that's a really good thing. <laughs> but, yes. But we know how valuable assessment is. We know that people will be successful without assessment. But help us help you. Uh, please take that part of the process seriously, because we're not talking about whether a ethereal church plant out there succeeds or fails in Never Never Know. We're talking about people's lives. Mm -hmm. We're talking about marriages, we're talking about parents, we're talking about children, we're talking about communities. And so we want to put our best foot forward, humanly speaking, using the wisdom that God has given us in order to make our church plan successful. So right. it's not an end-all, be-all, but boy, oh boy, it's incredibly helpful. Yeah, thank you, Tom. And that's true. One of the things that we see and and and. Kron and Elizabeth would attest to this and any of our assessment team, we see more uh, in the last, uh, you know, I used to assess for the PCA, so I've been doing assessment for 20 years. My wife does as well. And in the last 10, we see more and more um, candidates bringing uh, buckets of trauma. You know, the divorce, the, the children of divorce. Um, you know, and we we know because we've done it long. If we if we're not helping, we're again we're not trying to give people a grade. You're good. You know, we're not just looking at spiritual gifts. We're looking at spiritual health and sustainability. And and we we are also participating not just in like giving you a a recommendation. We're participating in your own going. And it's about to be my argument for why we need to, all of our presbyterians need to begin to think about what it would it look like to join with another presbytery and form a network. Because we send, I send people back that have been assessed that I know need help. They, they're gifted, but they're struggling. They, they're, they're, they're having a marital conflict that's escalating. Um, and, and, you know, they need, they need ongoing uh, counseling or whatever it is they might need or, or, or they're struggling with depression because their dad, you know, it, it could stem from the, they, they never knew their dad. And many people are driven to plant churches out of their pathologies just like I was. 
You know, I, I've sat by, who, have, did you guys read Kirk Thompson's The Soul of Shame? You should read his book. Uh, Kirk Thompson's The Soul of Shame. I was at the Denver Institute of Faith and Work. Um, um, I was on the Theological Advisory Committee for its formation. And so they hosted Kirk Thompson and, it, and, they, and they invited uh, a group of pastors to just have a sit down with him. And the room was crowded when you get a celebrity that's like on the book uh, tour coming in and everybody wants to come. So I got there just a little bit late. The only seat that was available left was I had to sit like Kirk Thompson's right here. And I was like right beside him like and he's he's talking to the group and um, and somebody made a joke. Uh, the book ought to be titled The Soul of Shane. And they just kept on, just they were ribbing me, you know, The Soul of Shane. And, um, and I, Kirk Thompson would laugh, and I couldn't see him, had to turn my head, and he said, I'm sitting right by him. And I finally said, if, guys, if you want me to be perfectly honest, I've, I've planted four churches. Nobody is that crazy. Uh, but I did it mostly out of, uh, you know, out of my own shame trying to sow fig leaves that were lost in the garden to give myself a sense of worth. And it made me overwork, made me neglect my kids, made me, you know, made me do a lot of things. God used it. It's amazing God uses people. The truth is he's using all of us that way. We carry this treasure in jars of clay. But it's, it's healthy to begin to lean in to the, the, the root motivation of what, what really is driving us. Because if it's not Jesus and the power of the gospel and his love for you, it will drive you to excess. And so what we're doing and as assessment is we're help, we're, we feel called to help planters. Like I told you, the, my call came, I've obviously been called to plant churches, but when I saw planters falling apart in the West and their wives and, you know, just, I mean, it, God did something in my wife and I, and we entered into what can we do to help in this whole uh, um, enterprise of, of helping people be healthy. And, um, and, you know, some of the, I have to, this, it's crazy, but some of the most messed up church planters are the best church planters. And they can grow, and because they're, the, you know, uh, They'll grow, and you've seen it happen. They, they, they're bigger than life, and they can, you know, they can speak in a room, get everybody worked up and excited, and they can grow a church, you know, to a thousand people, and five years later, it, you know, why? Because they were operating out of, you know, unrecognized personal pathology, and uh, and and not out of the their own communion and union with Christ in a way, and it. And it, and, and it blows up. So, so that's what we do. It, it's not just about assessing spiritual gifts and calling and those things. Although we certainly do that. We're, we're uh, assessing for uh, spiritual health and, and you, know, uh, you know, what's your sexual life like? We do ask that question. Uh, anybody that's been assessed, is, and, and are you addicted to pornography? And, uh, and uh, are you depressed? Are you in debt? Or, you know... All those things, and it's so intense that the that you know in an assessment that we we you can't enter into those kinds of deep questioning with with good counselors and a good assessment team without when the candidates come out we love them because we know them and they you know they over time they are vulnerable they talk about you know 
I've got this, this problem. And they think that, you know, they come thinking they're going to get a score. And, and you know, it's kind of like the gospel. This is going to disqualify me because I've struggled with this. We, we struggle in our marriage. Sometimes we argue and don't get along. And sometimes I clam up and don't speak to my wife and we, we you know, whatever. And when we speak into that and say, you know, Jesus loves you. And, you know, maybe you need, uh, you know, th- these things uh, so that you can do this in a healthy way. You know, it's cheerful. And, but the, the bond that that creates and then the oversight moving forward and the care that we, that we provide, uh, you know, is life-giving. And what it actually does, it helps us uh, plant churches that, uh, you know, are, are just more healthy in the long term and planters who actually are healthy. Yeah, somebody raised their hand. Yeah, Andrew. I just wanted to add in, too, your assessment does identify those Um, to say don't do it because of that, but it also helps to identify what areas I need to build to. You know, I'm, I'm not a great bookkeeper, all that right. kind of stuff. You know, you, if you do my personality, you're going to know that in 10 minutes. Right. I just don't care. Right. Um, and so I need somebody that's going to help me administratively in those areas. There are things like that come out to say, you know, you're, you're going to have to staff this early on, or you're going to have to have a daughter, a mother church that's going to help you with this, or Whatever. Right. Um, that, that kind of thing. I right. Think it's also a positive side to the weakness. Right. Area. Right. Exactly. So what? When? What, Tom. Can I go down the side road real fast because uh, he said I couldn't see who it was. It said something really important. Andrew Lamb. Actually, have a contractual relationship with Phil Van Valkenburg, who used to be like the business manager of the EPC. So when your church fights get to a point where they need to file with the state and figure out how to set up the business side of it, the national budget actually will pay for him to come in and consult with you because most church planters don't have that strength and they need that. So that's one of the areas where we've supplemented that. So I just we're trying to get the word out on that more and more. But I, since you brought up, I just want to mention. <coughs> Aspen Grove has a, a, what we call a church planner's notebook that gets into the all that, like how do you establish five months? What do you do first? What do you do second? What do you? You can have that for a small fee. We, it supports church, it's supporting church planning. Um, By that you mean beer? No, I, I, I might trade uh, the money that we charge for because it takes us money to print it. We can't give. We've learned we have to run a tight ship. I'm going to talk about funding a network director in just a little bit so that we're going to move into how do you form a network. Uh, but I was going to follow up with Andrew and Tom, thank you for your comment. With Andrew's comment, it's true. So assessment, a person comes out of assessment with uh, recommended, provisionally recommended, uh, with provisionally mean you're called to plant a church, but here's some things that you need to be addressing moving forward. Um, uh, provisionally recommended, uh, not recommended. You don't have the gifts. This is not what you call. You're a good pastor, but you're not called church, but plant a church. Uh, not recommended now, and that would be a, a, a person who is not recommended now. They they exhibit the gifts of church planting, but they've got something uh, going on in their lives, large amount of debt, or you know some uh, whatever it might be that's going to preclude them until they address that from being healthy in church planting 
and then as Andrew described, in the, uh, they come out with um, the, these are your great strengths. We list the strengths. And you'll be amazed at how, because they, we do a 360 eval, it's called the CLI, Church Leader Inventory, and the CLSI. Not, it's, uh, and we, we don't assume all planters are, uh, uh, lead planters are male. We got female church planters. So the, the, the lead planter would take the CLI, Church Leader Inventory, and then the, the spouse would take the Church uh, Leader uh, CLSI, Church Leader Spouse Inventory. And, um, and that's a 360 eval. I mean, you, you get two, uh, two, mentor, uh, uh, two mentors, uh, two peers, and, and two disciples to answer a long battery of questions related to church planting. And but through all the instruments and all the exercises of assessment, you get to the end and you list these strengths. And I, I see people weep because there are strengths that we all have that we don't even recognize in ourselves. And when you affirm people and it's like you are greatly gifted in this area, you know, above most people. And then we don't call them weaknesses anymore, but areas of growth. We list things where people, you know, they just don't, like Andrew said, some people just aren't, they don't have an organizational bone in their body. So they're going to have to augment to their, um, to their weaknesses. Uh, and, and, um, and, and then, you know, and so, and then, then we have a list of recommendations. We don't just say this is what you need to do. We give them uh, specific ways to do it. Connecting with this organization, uh, sign this church planning coach, et cetera. So that, that's, we talked a lot about assessment. Um, I'm going to keep moving here. Um, do y- y'all need to stand up and stretch or run to the restroom? Let's take a break. And then we'll start on the next part. The, I, I'm trying to save my best wind for the end, uh, for the reverse the order of this, because I'm trying to save the most important and the, the, what I really want to say uh, toward the end, although I think it's laced with that. Uh, what I want to move to now is uh, church planning networks. And um, um, the first couple of churches I planted were PCA churches. And one thing that has happened uh, is that I still get all the PCA literature as if, and I've been out of the PCA maybe uh, six years. In, in, in the EPC, and I get all the, I still get a, a, a statement balance on my retirement account, which is zero because I transported the money into the EPC. I, but I get it every month, and I still get uh, By Faith magazine every month. And uh, I normally don't read it, but my wife uh, handed me, uh, handed me a, the, a copy before I got on the plane and said, you should read this article. And it, the article in By Faith, the PCA's uh, publication, is about church planning networks and the, the influence of church planning networks and creating a church planning culture within the PCA. And uh, it was actually an excellent article. It gets into uh, some of the most uh, uh, prominent and successful networks and how they organize. It even deals with ecclesiolo- uh, ecclesiology and polity a little bit, how they are Presbyterian, how they relate to Presbyterian, all those things. So that's what I want to delve into. And uh, if you look at the outline, uh, church planning networks, it's shown in every study. There is not one study that does not show that church planning networks increase the effective. It's not the only way to do it. And we've been doing it without networks uh, uh, since Jesus pronounced the Great Commission, okay? 
But networks, are, they help. They increase the effect effectiveness of what we're called to do. And the reason, the main reason, there are multiple reasons, but the main reasons, and I, I want to be careful, I want to tread lightly. I have been part of mission uh, and church planning committees of Presbytery. And guess when I read the report before the committee meeting? Now, guess. I want to hear it. You're, you've been there. What? When? When did I read the report? Uh, what day was Presbytery? Friday. Friday morning. Friday morning. Or on the plane. You know, and the... Presbytery committees, although they mean well and, and, and can be great advocates for church planning, they never get around to doing the specificity required. It requires, I, can, I can't tell you how much specificity. When I say specificity related to some of the things you already heard, assessing. So here are some of the responsibilities, and this is not even all of the responsibilities uh, of a church planning network or a committee, if you're going to try to do it through a presbytery committee, the committee, you, what, what are committees composed of presbytery committees? Ruling elders with full-time jobs, usually unless they are retired, and teaching elders who are already overburdened and overworked. They do not have the time uh, even to read the report until they're on the, the plane headed to presbytery in the car driving to presbytery the day before. And uh, so in order to take care of church planters, to assess them, to make sure they're being coached, to, um, uh, to recruit church planters, all the above, it, it takes uh, real focus and specificity. And so here's some of the responsibilities. Um, you know, Church X wants to plant a church, or Presbytery Z wants to plant a church. What do we do first? Well, we've got to have a planter. And sometimes they have somebody in mind and they just, you know, uh, they don't read the instructions or the recipe. They try to make pancakes, a church plant, without reading the recipe. So they don't even think about assessment. And then th three years later, uh, often they look, down the look back and say, what did we do? You know, I'll give you an example. When I, I started a, a network in the PCA, it's called the Western Church Planning Network. And there's a church uh, uh, in Montana, large church, good church. They wanted to plant a church in Helena. And, uh, and great idea. Uh, really no reformed evangelical witness in Helena, Montana. They, but they had handpicked a guy. And the guy is uh, godly. Uh, as Steve Brown always says, he will be sitting closer to Jesus than I will when we get to the kingdom. Godly pastor, great man went through some uh, small assessment process, but was not an uh, a assessment that we recognized. Just like, but they were so committed to, that they wanted to plant church, but they were committed to this uh, candidate. So finally, we convinced them that he needed to be assessed. And like, it was obvious, he had a great marriage, godly man, but he didn't have a church planting bone in his body. He was one of the, he still is today one of the best pastors I know. Loving, uh, meets people well, but it was identified in assessment. He can't lead to, a, he can't recruit to a vision. He can't, he had no vision out. He's just a great pastor. But we told, so we told them that he's not recommended. And that's, you know, when the fireworks go off. 
and they decided to go ahead and do it anyway. So, uh, eight years later, uh, after spending I th uh, north of uh, probably $700,000 in so funding him and supporting the, the church planning budget, it folded. And uh, I do the rest of the story, they did actually write a letter and said, you were right, and we should have listened. He became a pastor to Helena, Helena pastoring state senators, doing all sorts of great work, but he, he didn't have the gifts to, uh, uh, to plant uh, a church. So uh, responsibilities of networks, we're involved in recruiting planters, we're involved in assessing, and I, don't, I put, probably should have put this first, but I spend uh, part of my prayer time every day praying for all our planters on the field. And not just for them in general ways, but for kingdom advancement ways and for what I know they're struggling with in any given moment. And I know that Presbyterians do that, but when, it, when you have a network and you feel responsible for the planters, I feel mostly responsible to pray. And, and pray often and um, uh, daily for the planters. And I add people like Jeffrey Lancaster to the list because he's been a, a lifelong friend. I pray for lots of church planters all over the place. And I do believe that God works when we're praying. Uh, we need to be praying for kingdom advance. All of Jesus' parables, read them. Uh, the woman at the well, it's really about the, the fields are ripe for harvest. There's somebody you didn't even recognize by well. He, he's actually teaching the disciples that they're the, the, you know, the, the fields are ripe for harvest. You know, and what does it say? Pray. Pray for laborers. That God would send laborers into the harvest field. So we need to be, pr who's praying for that? I'm praying for it. We talk about praying for revival, you know. I'm praying for laborers. I'm praying for more church planners. I'm praying for zeal for our church planners. I'm praying for zeal for the churches to get, uh, you know, to get engaged in church planning, to see what a powerful force for uh, kingdom growth and movement it is, in the, even in this post-Christian culture. And, and that, we, that we, need, we need funding. We need, we need laborers. So part of it's praying. We, we're involved in overseeing uh, the, the planters as a network. Uh, for the presbytery, I'll describe how that works in a minute. We're involved in coaching. Uh, to be part of our network, you you can't just say here. Oh, uh, uh, you know, Billy Bob over here is going to be my network coach or my church planning coach. We 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 let people choose, but we also uh, we train church planning coaches so that we know that the coach they're the the, per, the couples getting are actually uh, able to do a good job. And they know what they're doing when they're coach because not every church planning coach is necessarily a good coach. So we we use Multiply Ministries. Tom Wood, uh, longtime PCA guy, uh, uh, church multiplication. We use their gospel coach model, and we train our people there. But we also observe how they're doing uh, when they coach. So um, I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. We're uh, we're you know a lot of times presbytery committees. Again, because it requires specificity to think about expansion. You know, some churches say we'd like to plant a church here. But if you don't have a church in your presbytery is thinking about church planting very much, who's thinking about we really need a church within, at this point, over here? So part of what our network does with our executive committee, we pray about, okay, we, we've got this church is rolling off financially there's a need over here. We, we need to, we, you know, I just told you, I just got back from Phoenix. And I swear I spent uh, three days um, interviewing people, meeting with pastors, uh, making connections, 
uh, to plant to move forward in planting churches in Phoenix. So part of what networks do uh, is that we're able to focus on what it takes to expand church planting into our re in our region uh, forward. And then we report to Presbytery. Networks are Presbyterian. If you want to read about it, read about it. The By Faith article, somebody's got a copy. No, that's not a copy of it. It's yellow, too. I thought this was the 7-9 thing. But it looks the same color copy. But it, it talks about that they are, you know, we have uh, in our network oversight uh, composed of uh, ruling and teaching elders, which I will get into a little bit uh, in a, a minute as we talk about. So we report to Presbytery, at every Presbytery, what we're doing. And I, uh, I am uh, a member as a network director of our general council. So uh, I am, am answerable to the general council of Presbytery. Uh, I go to all, all those meetings, which a lot were by Zoom uh, until recently. And they are able to ask me anything or to you know, say, what about this? How's it going? Uh, and we're going to talk about funding in just a minute. Uh, our Presbytery gives to the network. Uh, they have annually for the last six years, and which I'll talk about in a minute. So the formation of uh, church planning networks, I'm going to pick on Tom just a little bit here. Uh, the first thing is economy of scale. Denominations don't, can't start a church planning movement. I mean, they could dabble at it and they can try, but it's so big. This country is so big. Tom is not going to be doing demographic work in Phoenix like I was doing two weeks ago. I am. And why can I do that? Because I'm, I'm focused in a region. And so the economy of scale of this whole country, uh, I was in Alaska salmon fishing uh, two weeks ago. My daughter is a public health nurse there on the Kenai Peninsula. And I've got, I brought home a lot of smoked salmon. You, if you come visit me in Denver, I'll give you some. But... Um, we, we have, I mean, the U.S. is in Alaska. I mean, it, it, it's Hawaii. It's a big country. And so um, it, as we talk about an economy of scale, networks enable us to get geogra geographical specificity necessary to harness and move forward in a movement. So I'm, I'm up here. I'm, I'm flying the network flag. Give me an N. Give me an E. You know, we need, I mean, if we're going to multiply a church planning movement, we need to multiply networks. And I, it, I mean, and I, you might say, how, do, how in the world do we do that? I'm going to talk to you about how to do that. But we need networks, um, again, are, are gr much greater in terms of effectiveness than trying to do it as a presbytery or trying to do it another way. Uh, if that's true, and it is true, every statistic, every demographic, every study shows that, then why shouldn't we be figuring out how do we multiply networks? And then we can get national synergy through the, the and, and share best practices from different regions, regions of the country and cross-pollination. I long for the day when I'm assessing a person uh, from uh, South California that is uh, struggling in a particular area that I can send that person back because that's not obviously Aspen Grove's turf that I can send that person back to a healthy network. And sometimes, you know, if you send them back to a healthy presbytery or committee, I'm just 
usually there's not any oversight. There, the specificity necessary to take other planner doesn't exist. So that's why we're trying to figure, I, I'm flying the flag of let's figure out how to grow and multiply uh, networks. So there are some church planners that approach our network, and this is the beauty of the EPC. We, uh, we talk about um, theological distinctives. I have some people that come and say, Shane, I'd like to be part of Aswan Grove. And I talk to them, and, and I find out pretty quickly they, uh, you know, they, they are not, they don't share a theological distinctive. They don't, they, they're not reformed. And, or I get the other thing, I get, I get people that share our theological distinctives. Um, I'll tell a story. Stories are better. Get a point across. Uh, long, uh, long, long ago in a land far, far away, I was uh, the chairman of an M&A committee of a PCA presbytery. Uh, and part of my job was to drive to the hinterlands of a certain state to uh, interview groups about uh, that th that would contact MA and say we're interested in having a PCA church. Let's use the terminology again here in Ten Buck Two. And so I was young, didn't know what I was doing. Now I'm older and still don't know what I'm doing. And I would drive, I would drive, you know, to this place. And I remember going to this one place, and I pulled up to this, I mean, like a mansion with live oak trees and a long driveway with, you know, and, and, and pulled in and the matriarch was serving dinner and there were several people there and we had a nice dinner and they were sizing me up and I was sizing them up and we sit down in the formal uh, living room after dinner and there's a dessert, you know, and coffee if you wanted it and and then we get around to business, and I always learn to ask, why do you want a church here in Timbuktu? And this is the answer I got from the matriarch in her thick southern accent. We just love Aussie Sproul. <laughs> that was the reason, you know. And then, then I, I, after I, like, swallowed hard, I like, you know, R.C. taught me systematic theology long ago at uh, RTS for half a semester, and then he left and went to Orlando. I like R.C. too, or, you know, whatever. And then, you know, I'd wait a little bit, and I'd try to ask the question again, do you, uh, uh, why else do you want to plant church here? And what I learned is if I never heard an articulation for the, the broken people in that town, or the lost people, or uh, that, you know, the truth is some people don't have a missional commitment. So we have, a, we have what we call a missiological, theological statement that we've written for our network. And I coach other networks on how to do that because that helps us define the kind of churches that we're planting. Uh, if you've re ever read any kind of movement literature, you, you, ha you can't be too narrow to create a movement, but you can't be too broad. So we want people that are committed theologically to, the, to what we're committed to in the EPC, but we don't want people that just love their theological commitments that have no missional bone in their body or engagement. We, what do we want? We want both. And so we, in order to... Uh, to harness and grow a movement, you have, to, you, have to def, you have to define what you're about. So I have to tell people no. 
I have some people come that want to plant a church and all they want really is a reformed outpost in 10 buck two. And I have to say, no, I'm sorry. You know, you, you, I mean, I have to see missional commitment. That they're called, we, we, our planters, uh, you know, are called, if they're not called uh, to take care of the, the world and the neighborhoods to where, which they're sent, they, they're not called. I mean, and, but we also, uh, there's some people that come and they're not necessarily from the EPC, they approach Aspen Grove and they've got some newfangled approach, you know, that, that doesn't fit into our theological distinctive. And I, I'm always nice, but I say, you know, there are other people over there doing what you're describing. You know, go, you know, go hook up with them. They're just not a fit theologically. Uh, by the way, all the, you know, like Thomas and Amy Warmath is doing a bivocational house church uh, plant in Salt Lake City. They are distinctively reformed and EPC. They practice in their house church uh, word and sacrament. Baptism, the Lord's Supper, he's ordained, he preaches the word, uh, and that's a, that's a distinctive. If, you know, if somebody has, you know, some newfangled thing that we're going to sit around a table and, you know, uh, do Q&A, and that's church, that is outside our distinctive. So you get it? I mean, we're, we're so in, in forming a network, you have to, um, you have to have uh, a, a I call it, and I don't have it up there, but a missiological, theological missiological statement. If you're interested in forming a network, Elizabeth, uh, uh, over here, Cron and Elizabeth, they're part of forming uh, a tri-presbyterian network on the East Coast. And so I'm a consultant for that. So I walk people through how to write a, the, you know, and a lot of people just take ours and rearrange the paragraphs and, and put their name on it, and that's fine uh, to do. So uh, you need that. Well, can I paraphrase our network's missiological theological statement? Uh, no, it's it's like uh, twenty-five pages, but it gets into missional. I mean, it, it, it defines missional biblically of what the church is called to do, and we talk about what I talked about the first, the Great Commission. The Great Commission is really to plant churches, baptize, teach, make disciples. And, and so, we, and we talk about a commitment to evangelism, and we talk about a commitment to uh, mercy and ministries of mercy and social justice. We want our planners to love place. We, but you can probably find that on your website, right? Uh, I don't think that's on our website. I mean, just because we don't want people, you know, yeah. people start lifting our stuff. And um, not, not that we're trying to, we do share it, but we want to share it with people that we, you know, again, we want to, Aspen Grove wants to see a movement develop, and it's already happening, and thanks to Tom and others, but uh, develop and grow and harness a movement in the in entirety of the EPC. But I can share with you, but it just summarizes, in, in a short way, it summarizes our, who, this is who we are theologically, and this is who we are missionally. And we want our planters to fit because if you don't define the kinds of churches you're looking to plant, you will be a mile wide and about that deep. And, and movements can't be harnessed that way. You've, you've got to be, uh, that's why the EPC, our vision statement is so wonderful. It is gospel-centered. In the essentials, unity. You know, in the non-essentials, charity or grace. And in all things, 
love. That's a gospel-centric statement. But we're seeking to be, uh, you know, and networks need to, you've got to define your boundaries. And they, they've got to be, you know, theologically sound, but um, missionally, um, uh, there's got to be missional commitment. Uh, and I don't just, uh, um, as they say in the South, I'm not just whistling disc, Dixie. Uh, when I talk about gospel centrality, it's now become a buzzword. Um, I read, I, I think I've read all of Luther's, Martin Luther's translated works. Uh, my favorite is just the, the vo- three volumes of the works of Martin Luther. And I was reading in that a couple of years ago. And, and I realized, you know, Luther didn't parse justification and sanctification. He kind of, he, he had a, 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 like a connected view between the two. And I'm reading, you know, it's in that section where he says, the, you know, the darkest continent on the face of the earth is my own heart. And I need to stake a flag for the gospel there every day. But he makes a statement in that very paragraph where he says, if we lose the doctrine, and he really means the way we would think of sanctification by faith. If we lose the doctrine of sanctification by faith, the whole cause of the Reformation will be lost overnight. And he's talking about the power for mission. Where does the power for mission come from? I mean, I I get up every day and I see a guy that lives in my neighborhood. I live in the hood that sometimes I just struggle with not despising him. It's just, you know... Tried to help him, broken, doesn't want to, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, I love Tim Keller's story. I've um, snatched it. He tells a story in one of his sermons. I've listened to most of the older ones. And he said he was speaking somewhere. He had to get across Central Park. He stopped at a fast food restaurant. He was starving. And you needed to eat before he spoke. And the line was out the door. And he said he was, he was standing there and getting a little, you know, it was moving slow. And he's finding himself getting angry and angry. It's like, this does say fast food. <laughs> and, uh, and he gets a little closer. And then he realizes the problem. The, the person they have working, the cashier, does not speak English. And then he said that he instantly said, what? He, he just kind of got inside his anger a little bit. It's like, what in the world? Or they got somebody up there like a foreigner, you know, an, you know running the cash register. And then he said that very morning... The way Jesus works, he said, I had read in Deuteronomy, uh, you know, to be kind to the alien and orphans and widows and the aliens within your gate because you too were once an alien. And he said the Holy Spirit brought that, this uh, uh, paraphrasing a story, but it brought it to memory, uh, to his memory. And he was like, oh. And he said when he got to the cashier, he felt like reaching over and hugging her. So the point being, when we talk about gospel centrality, we're not just whistling Dixie. We believe unless we're mining our planters, unless I'm mining my own, the, the heart of the gospel for me, that I'm going to have no power for mission. That's what Luther said. The, the, the gospel is not the ABCs of the Christian life. It's, it's the A to Z, Keller's words, okay? And it is. It, it, we have got to mine Jesus. Because I have a, a stinky heart that normally does not want to love the broken or risk or do anything else. I don't want to live for the kingdom. So I have, to, I, have to, I have to pray myself into Jesus. I have to pray my doubts. I have to pray my fear. I have to pray my sin. I have to, I have to, pray my, uh, I have to lay hold of the gospel. And out of that comes, just like in Keller's example, 
when I pray the gospel into my heart, there's a, a, a love and joy and peace that emerges that enables me to live out uh, the values of the kingdom, the fruit of the Spirit. It is fruit. The fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, it, it's always, it, it comes, it's fruit. It comes from laying hold of the gospel. The Spirit applying the gospel to your own heart. So we have, when we say gospel centrality, we're committed to it. We're committed to teaching it. We're committed to, to, to doing, arranging our soul care retreats, all that we do as a network in a way that we're offering the hope of the gospel to each other. And the planters are the people that offer it the best to me because they're honest about their struggles and I'm struggling. And for me to hear their stories, it's life-giving. So gospel centrality, bylaws. Every network have, has to have bylaws. Uh, you know about bylaws because you write it for any cor corporation, including nonprofits. Uh, so you have to have your bylaws have to uh, conform to federal and uh, uh, state requirements. Your bylaws deal with your governance uh, of the network. If you're going to form a network, you've got to deal with how your how your um, governance works within your network. Okay, so I've already described mine just a little bit. I won't, don't want to be too redundant. But our network, the way it works, I'm a member uh, de facto because I'm the direct, Aspen Grove Church Planning Network is an agency of the Presbytery of the West. And the agencies define that the director will participate on the general council. So I'm there at the meetings because I'm the, and that's where they talk to me about it. Uh, do you need a extra time as we're doing uh, the Presbytery docket? How's the finances going? You know, so I report to them. But I also, the way we define our governance, our bylaws, we have an executive uh, committee. Okay? And our executive committee is composed of, I try to get a, like a working board of people who have great experience in church planning. And so we even changed the bylaws a little bit so that we could have at-large members who weren't part of the Presbytery of the West. How many of people in here are board members of Aspen Grove in the room? Richard Reeves. Well, why? Because we needed to grow in our understanding of multi, uh, our cross-ethnic church planning. And, we, and, and, and Richard, I'm sure he's about to tell me after this, he's about to get off the board because he's tired of me. But, and then Elizabeth Gibson, she has had so much experience in, um, in church planning assessment. They, Kron Elizabeth have planted three churches. So we needed female board members who understood uh, church planting as it relates uh, in the EPC. So we have, lo we have local ruling and local teaching elders on our executive, uh, executive committee. And so I meet with them. Uh, they are like a session to me. I report to them. We meet and we go through the business. So that's the way that. And um, the... Um, the, so the, we have bylaws. Again, uh, other networks have gone to school on our bylaws. Uh, actually, uh, the network formed on the East Coast, their bylaws are far better than ours because ours are lacking in certain places. But you know, to form a network, you have to have bylaws. Um, then we, in our bylaws, we define uh, obligations of network planters. Now, don't mishear me. We do that because... The, I don't know any, this is not the best way to say it. So if you need to kick me or challenge me afterwards, please do. But the only time that you really have 
Uh, the, the ability to speak with any kind of authority and requirement to a church planter, I guess when that is? When they need... Yeah, when they need money. And once you approve them and give them, and, and, and give them money and send them out the door, if, you know, if you've already done that, you have no... That's the, the cow's out of the barn. It ain't coming back. What we do, because we know, and I did this, and, you know, I've had rogue church planners. I, the, the first network I formed was disorganized. I didn't know what I was doing. And, I, and I, again, I learned most things I learned by the sledgehammer method. You know, and it's like, oh, why did we do and, and it? And really with the heart for taking care of planters. So in our uh, bylaws, we define the obligations that we require of our church planters. And what is the first one? Assessment. Assessment is your friend. Nobody should, in their right mind, should try to plant a church without a thorough assessment. I mean, it, it just, again, I always say how many, you know, corporations spend a million dollars with no quality control. Just jump into it. We know what we're doing. Yay. You know, let's plant churches. Woohoo! Zeal for church planning can outrun wisdom. We, you know, we do want to plant church, and we do want to go woohoo, but we want to do it as wise. And there's no uh, full, foolproof uh, method. So ob- obligations that we, and, and we get our church planners to sign uh, a document that says they're obligating themselves to being assessed. And there, the board executive committee can make an exception of an individual that has been assessed and and planted a successful church, and if they're assessed by an entity that we uh, recognize, uh, um, and they and they not are leaving the church, they just planted with trauma. If they're leaving the church, they just planted with trauma or struggle. We want to at least have the opportunity to help or speak into their lives. Probably don't need reassessing, but at least they you know yeah. So assessment. Um, network, uh, that dollar sign, funding commitment fine. We define on the front end what we are, how much money we give yearly to church plans. Okay? But, you know, and, um, we, and we require, so we, we not only say that we're going to give you money, but we define how much that is. And I'm going to get into that just a little bit. Some people, uh, some networks give the same amount to every planner regardless. But some, uh, some networks, like we do, we don't give the same money uh, to every church planner regardless because it costs a lot more to live in downtown Denver than it does in Lake and Kansas. And, and, it, and usually, in the, still in the heartland, churches don't take quite as long to... So we, want, we're, we try to be wise with our resources in the way that we tier our funding. Uh, annual so-care retreats required of all our planters and spouses. And they sign on if they get the money. If you, you don't get the money, if you don't sign on to come, and that there are no excuses unless you're in labor, uh, went labor an hour ago, <laughs> too. But, and the reason for that, planters more than, it, it, church planting is the most isolating. Uh, uh, it, it can just isolate you. You can feel alone. You're starting a small business and doing all the pastor. It, it is the hardest work out there. And so church planters and spouses need a place where it's okay not to be okay. And, and we, we create a culture. 
we at the church planter um, soul care retreat, that's what it's about. There's, there are always a lot of laughter and a lot of tears. And we, we get around each other and lay hands on each other and pray. And the pain that comes out that, for what people are facing and how they've been mistreated and uh, kicked on by people that they're trying to plant, all stuff, all the stuff, you know. And, and so we're there to, to enter into that with them for long-term health. And, and it's life-giving. It's a, a living example of what the gospel's about, you know, where we're, where we're sharing. And, and I, I can't tell you how many times a, a planter's wife has just, you know, held back, held back, held back, just kind of modest, and then just the floodgates open. Because she's been holding and carrying all this stuff that she didn't feel like she could tell anybody or talk to anybody. So that, again, a, a network, Presbyterians just don't do that. And if you don't do that, all this stuff is going to happen until Sally Sue explodes and or tanks or gets to, and, it, and it, you know and it ends. So we that's a requirement. We that ha, uh, and, and then there is a because we want to propagate church planning. All of our church planners sign on the dotted line that they're going to give one percent of their uh, annual tithes and offerings, uh, uh, accepting any money given for a future building fund. They give 1% from the day they begin worship back to the network. Okay. And the money, the other thing I need to say is the money we give them, if they are not taking it and sending it to us for these things that they have to have, uh, you know, uh, a network approved coach, that costs money. And an annual soul care retreat, that costs money. Uh, we, we deduct that from the amount we send because, again, it's, it's an unnegotiable. And then, uh, and then they give 1% back until they become localized, uh, the PCA terms particularized, and then it bumps up to 2.5%, other networks 2.75. And it, it still doesn't fund the whole thing, the whole uh, the financial structure of planting future churches, but it, when you get four or five churches that you planted giving back, and as they're growing, it actually over time enables you to keep doing what you're doing. So that's the way we set up uh, the network um, so that the planner signs a commitment. And then the director. I get a tons of questions about uh, my, my role. And uh, let me just say this. Uh, the studies bear it out, and I've watched it happen. Networks that don't have directors flounder. Because uh, it, when, it ain't no, uh, when it's everybody's job, it ain't nobody's job. I get out of bed in the morning and I think network. I think the, about the planners. I think about what I got to do today. I think about who I need to call today. I think about all the stuff that you've seen up there. That's what I do. And I don't think I'm doing it for me or for Aspen Grove. I'm doing it for the Presbyterian of the West because that's what I've been charged to do. In other words, char the Presbyterian of the West didn't give away their call to plant churches. And so, some other, there are churches in the Presbyterian of the West that plant without the network. So you don't, I mean, you're Presbyterian, you do whatever you want to, that's what it means. The, but, uh, the, uh, but more and more people are taking, you know, they, we're doing, they, they said the best way we can fulfill our call, uh, biblical call and, 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 and our, the call of our standards to be involved in missional engagement is by forming a network. Because they realize that, just what I realize, we, we just never get around to getting it done. We got to have somebody call. So, so the, and you get, now, but networks that don't have a director, they flounder. Trust me. I, I can give, I'm not going to tell stories, but I could. 
the qualification of a director is very similar to the qualifications of a church planter. They have to be entrepreneurial. They have to have kingdom vision. They have to be able to articulate that kingdom vision. And they need, they need experience. You can't just get a director who's never planted a church. You, gotta get, you, you need a director and, uh, that, that has gone through the wars of church planting so that he, that, that he or she is able to empathize with what church, planting, uh, church planters and their families are facing. So you, you need a, a director with experience. The funding is the big deal. You know this in any startup organization or any, um, uh, any kind of missional organization, you can't have too much overhead. People's like, I'm not going to give it that because they, they're spending all their money on Shane to fund the director. And do you think they do that? The Presbyterian gets $25,000 a year. Do you think I can live on $25,000 a year in downtown Denver? No, not even close. So what, the, way that, the only way that we're going to multiply networks in the EPC, and I, again, I'm praying that God would start a movement and, and convict elders and presbyteries in a way that we've got to figure out how to do this. Uh, we've got to multiply to people that can direct it, and it, it tends to be seasoned church planner, maybe some of them sitting in this room, that, got, that they've done it, and now they can pour into the next generation, and they can join a band of other uh, church planning network directors in the EPC to get um, you know, horizontal support and commitment and share best practices. Uh, but the way that I'm funded, and I love to say this to planners they, when they complain about raising money, I said, what do you think I do? And they're going, what? It's like, you got, you got a position, you're the network director. I said, yeah, and that don't even give me a third of my salary, so the rest of it I get from uh, uh, fundraising. And I don't raise money from any churches in the presbytery. They contribute to the network, and all the money that the network contributes actually goes actual to, to, out to church planters and planting churches. I raise, uh, my, I raise individual support. They're, the presbytery money goes into the uh, network. The churches that support the network over and above the church plan goes into the network. And uh, the other third I get from my entrepreneurial creativity and wizardry. I'm an elk hunting guide. I, I, I realized when I gave my money back to the last church I planted, I was like, okay, I've still got a, college, uh, a kid at college at KU that I'm paying out of state tuition to that I've got to figure out how to reproduce myself. And my wife said, well, you're good at hunting and fishing. And you, you've always guided people. And, they're asked, and I started researching what, it, what God's got. And I was like, it's pretty lucrative. And it's it's, you know, I can, and the, the crazy thing, uh, Richard actually comes and brings, uh, comes elk hunting and he brings uh, two elders. So it actually has become a ministry and it's only seasonal. It's uh, part of September and then October and it's done. But I'm able to, uh, so I get a third, a third, a third. I get a, a third from the network uh, from, and then I get a third from individual support raising and I get a third from my other entrepreneurial. And some of that is also consulting and coaching. So, you know, so that's the way I, that I make it. And I'm able to say to church planners, I'm doing just what you do. And it's good in an organization when the, the person at the top is actually doing what they're asking people at the bottom. It just kind of, you know, and, and I'm convinced, though, that there are other people uh, that can, uh, that we need more network directors because we need no, more networks uh, in uh, uh, the EPC. 
So network funding models. I told you I was going to talk about this. The uniform models that I give every church planter the same amount, you know, regardless. I just, it's just a standard amount. This is what you get. This is for how long, okay? And um, I don't like that model because I don't think it's the most effective. And the other thing that we face is in different regions of the, regions of the country, it takes longer. Like I've already said in the secular West, Sometimes seven year in doing great work, seeing conversions, it, it's still not self-funding yet because it's hard, hard soil. So the, our network, we don't give a dime to any church planter. We require an annual review of our executive committee. Did you hear me? I know we're getting tired. This has been long um, and people are getting hungry. But... Uh, we, we, so what we do, we make a three-year commitment to a church planter, a, a three-year financial commit, commitment, knowing it's probably going to take six or seven years because we know that it's hard. We, the churches still think in the three-year model, and we know it's hard to go to churches and say, I need money for six years. They'll say, no, sorry. Uh, so we coach people to go and ask for money for three years and then on the front end tell them, you know, I'll give updates. We're going to give updates. I'll speak to your missions conference. If you need to know anything, you can, you can call Shane, the director of the network. Uh, but I'll probably, if things are going well, I'll probably be back because this is probably going to take six years if, if this is an average in the West. So we, so we, we do that. Uh, but believe it or not, I've never been this organized in my life, but um, we have an interview with the executive committee. We have a, their, the gospel, their coach reports to the, uh, the executive committee uh, at most meetings. And then before we give them their second year money, there's a review. And the purpose of the review is to find out the health of the church planter and see where they are in in their progress toward um, starting a church. And we have actually a questionnaire that we fill out that helps us understand. The, the point is we don't want to continue, we don't want to fund a failing church. If we see the, the, that a church two years is, is already in the death cycle, then, then we, want, we don't want to continue to fund we, we, we want to pull the plug quickly. If the health of the uh, planter deteriorate, whatever. I mean, we, we're, we stay on top of funding so that we, so we have an annual review. It's usually a three-year commitment. And we have a scaled model. Um, the scale model is simply that we don't, I don't give the planter in Lake in Kansas the same amount that, that we provide for, say, a planter in downtown or in Boulder. Or where it's, you know, we just, we, we have a scaled model for the amounts and, and sometimes even the duration. And the contingencies are always an annual and then a, a, a more thorough view. If a, a church planner has made great progress in three years, but they've got about three more years to go, we have a more thorough review uh, three years in for the, so that we're doing the, that we're moving in the right direction for the remainder of the uh, three years. Um, I think that's all I have other than the time for questions and answers. And so I wrote a few questions up there um, so that to give you some things to ask. Yes. Yeah, I had a question about um, just the funding on the 
aspect of it. I, I, I understand that it's better to have a director than not a director. Um, but I, I'm not sure, and I'm hoping that you can shed light on whether it's it's worth diverting funds from a church plant and church planters to a director. Like, is there a return on that investment that makes the diversion of funds worth it? And what is you know what what's that return on investment? That that's something that you know, a network in a presbytery or volunteers are unable to do or it's difficult. Say the last part again. I had a hard time. Um, I'm just wondering, you know, if is there something that the director does that a network in a presbytery, you know, a committee or something along those lines, a committee of volunteers cannot do? Like, what's the return on investment as, as having a paid director? It's a great question. And I don't, you know, I probably in, in, in this talk, you know, um, you know, made us. In order to have a director, there's got to be a qualified candidate, obviously. And in order for uh, that person to take a small amount rather than a large amount from the invested church planning dollars of the presbytery, they got to be willing. They got so they got to not only be a, there to be a candidate, there's got to be willing. Uh, I would kind of to answer the first part of your question. I would say what I said initially. I have seen, I know of a network that they had this financial guru on uh, their executive committee and he brought this um, projected proposal and showed how many churches in eight years they could plan if they weren't paying the director. And it, it was a lot more. But guess how many they planted? when they got rid of the director? They planted one. In fact, the planting went way down because the, it gets back to the specificity thing. All you, I mean, I have people, I hate people ask me, what do you do? It's like, I can't get everything done I'm doing. You know, all the conversations nationally about church planting, about assessment, about recruiting, all those things, it just takes a lot. And then the, the whole planning of retreats and soul care and coaching and conversations, that it just it really does take, uh, it doesn't mean a presbytery can't do it, but it, it, it is difficult because it does take uh, uh, specificity. And I'm not, and please don't mishear me, I went to this seminar where that dude in there, uh, you know, um, said that we, you know, that their only way to plant churches is through networks. I'm not saying that. It, it, it isn't. Uh, I, I'm saying it is, is in a very effective way. And every study shows that the effectiveness on every category goes up when we are able to establish networks. But there are drawbacks. There are, and I have seen models, it's a great question, where the uh, networks just plan their director too much. In fact, my predecessor, we've got to be careful, but I just realized when I took, you know, the, the Aspen Grove from the, my predecessor, who I'm dear friends with, I was like, I can't take that much money. You know, it, it, it'll sink it. You know, it can't, it can't, it cannot, you know, it, there's got to be an economy of scale, and I, you know, I can't. And so, the, you know, some people explore tri-presbytery or bi-presbytery next. What would it look like for two presbyteries to pool their resources enough 
that they could fund a, a, a and the other way it happens, and I probably didn't even say this, so your question's great. Uh, most networks form, they start off with a part-time director. And so that they can, they can begin to climb the financial hurdle. But you've got to take care of a part-time director because there's no such, the, the word is false. There are no part-time directors because it's a full-time job, especially if you're doing your, so, so yeah. So great question. Other questions? So the door slam. But strategies and That's a great question, and I, I intended to address it, but somehow in my um, I didn't do it. Uh, so I'll give you a this is a quiz because I see people like, ah, let's get this through this question and get out of this room, which I, I want to get out of here too. Um, what do you think the three bottlenecks are, the three the things that would in, impede uh, starting the next church? Yeah, no, not the network. What, what would be, uh, what are the three bottlenecks, uh, say that we're, we're at, uh, we're at stage uh, A of the timeline and we want to get over here and plant a church. What do you think keeps us from planting, continuing to plant churches or st starting churches? Perceived or real? Real. Lack of money and lack of people to go. You hit it right, you're close. Yeah. So the, the bottom, three bottlenecks in church planning is you don't have an available planner or the right available planner or an assessed available planner. You know, you don't have, so that, that's a bottleneck. You can't plan a church if you don't have a planner. So somebody's got to be processing planners and getting to know them and who, you know, who, who, you know, so that's, so you've got to have a planner. The second one is you've got to have funding. And the third one is uh, you have to have a, a decided upon location, uh, you know, and I do that work. I didn't refer to that. I work with, you know, I hate to say it, but we, we, we don't have many EPC churches, but we got territorial pastors. They want another EP church within 30 miles of them because they're afraid they're, you know, they like it when people Google their name and they're the EPC church. And, the and then yet there are a million people nearby that, you know, that they're not <laughs> reaching us. Yeah, so I have, to, I, do, I have to do that. So the other thing is the, we study demographics. Like I told you, I was just in Phoenix, spent three days there, met with some people I know. And the, we, I mean, we, we know what, and I'm getting around to answer your question, we know where we want to go next. And it, it's not always just cities. I mean, we just planted a church in Lake in Kansas. 2,500 people? But the significant thing there, they drive in out from all these farms all the way out, and, the, and God's at work. So we're committed to planting in the hinterlands, small, large, all the above. But in the recruiting process of church planters, I never say, I never bring a person and say, this is your only option. Now, I want to be sure that the planter matches location, but why would I fly somebody from Baltimore to Denver if they're looking on the uh, Colorado Front Range or, or, or I met them in Phoenix, why would I want to just say, 
you know, just have, this is the next thing we're doing. Because if that person just didn't feel called to that, they may be called to church planting in our presbytery and with Aspen Grove, but it's always good to show them two or three options so that, you know, I don't know how the Holy Spirit's going to work. I've, I've seen people, I've offered somebody one time, I thought it was the best situation. That, that the, I, I, I kind of thought about getting back in. I'm too old to do it. I was like, and then I, I took him to another spot, and it just was, I was like, he's going to hate this. Look at, you know, and God called him there, not the, the sexy spot, you know. So you, we don't know, and so we, the, what, Tom, no, we don't know. So we, we try to, as a network we've learned through the School of Hard Knocks, we want to have several um, potential sites uh, on the radar so that when we recruit a planter, we give them uh, some, uh, you know, some choices, to, to put it bluntly. And then we require them, the second part of your question, they have to present a, plan, a budget and a plan to our committee uh, for church planning, and obviously we've interviewed them beforehand, and we, we, like I talked about earlier, they fit into the theological, mystical distinctive that we define for our network, that they don't somehow are outside of that. And then we, the committee, our, the final call comes when the committee approves the plan. And they present a budget, they pr uh, present a plan, uh, a, a, a comprehensive plan, a timeline, budget, projected budget, where the money's coming from, how long's it, all of that. And we look through all of that. We, you know, we sign them up for the soul care retreat, uh, sign them a gospel coach and everything I said. So, yeah. Did that answer? You, there was one part of it I think I've scraped over. Yeah, it's um, have a couple of options and then give people and offer them options and then maybe there's a better option. Right. So many bottlenecks happen in networks when the other thing happens. They bring a planter out, and this is where we're planting next. And they have never identified more than one place. And if it's just not a fit, then it then the you know they're gone, and you you you're kind of starting over. It's another reason you need to be talking to more as a network. Uh, you know, because of what I do nationally, I know the church planters out there. You know, sometimes church planters are going to be perpetual church planters, and they're getting the seven-year itch. I call it. And, and so I know the ones, because they've learned to call me, it's like, we're look, so I'm, I'm always in conversation, and that's part of the recruiting. It's just hard, for, again, for presbytery committees to, to do that. So, Tom, you keep raising your hand. Yeah, I was just going to add on to everything Shane said was right. Um, but finding a church planter sometimes, it's kind of like the insurance equation. You make 10 phone calls to get three appointments to make one sale. So I, I think that the... Uh, Act, you know, calling Shane and, and getting tied in with him, but uh, looking everywhere, asking everybody, look at seminaries. Uh, the guys on our leadership team are coast to coast. You have Sean Robinson in California. You got Mike Moses in North Carolina, out in St. Louis. You got guys here in Memphis. I would just, I would look under every rock. I, I would just be as thorough as I possibly could. Uh, because it, it sometimes, you know, the cupboard's full. We have five or six folks looking to go, and other times it's like, man, it's a little thin right now. Yeah. And it turns out that I talked to a guy in Nova Scotia who knew a guy in Boston that had a front floor. I mean, right. It, it literally can be that like that. It, so it, it, no it, place to not look. 
Uh, one second, I'll, I'll, but it, it becomes a reason, another compelling reason for uh, uh, the form formation of networks in the EPC that collaborate. I mean, you know, because there are a lot of times that I have somebody that's like, this person is really not a fit in this context or in the, even this area of the country, but it'd be a great fit there. And if I know a network there, and sometimes it's a conversation with Tom, or Tom, I get calls from Tom, you know, it's like, I've got this guy, so-and-so call me, but, you know, would he be a, you know, so that's important. And we need to, the, the big thing is educating our presbyteries, not only on, we need to f be thinking towards starting of networks, but how do you even uh, take advantage of the, the national team and what's already going on as it relates to assessment and all the thing, the hard work we've done for the last six or seven years, including getting, uh, you know, I, I know some church planners are doing a good job, but they've, they've got a crisis with one of their children or something like that, and they need some input. And so we, you know, Kron has a full-time counseling practice, but he makes time, and we need a couple more Krons, uh, to take, takes time out with church planters to, to help them in, in areas. And, and that's great because, you know, I'm not trained or qualified to do that, but it, so I lean, on, I lean on Kron and Elizabeth a lot. But I don't, you know, I'm probably leaning on um, too much. And we, so we, we need to, again, as we grow networks, we can have more people that can do the kinds of things that need to be done to help us be successful. I'm sorry, go ahead. I have a question about your connection to seminaries. Um, I serve just north of New York City. It's not a whole lot in the way of strong seminary presence. Mm -hmm. um, how... How do you build some sort of a church planting network when you don't have a natural feeder seminary to be able to be working with? What, what presbytery? Are you in a presbytery there? The, the presbytery of the east? Well, Gordon uh, up north. You got the Philly seminaries down south. Mm -hmm. We're in this kind of strange middle area. Mm -hmm. There's not a whole lot. Mm -hmm. New York City doesn't have a whole lot to offer either. Well, the networks uh, don't form out of seminary. I guess a seminary could form a network. I never thought about that. But they typically form out of the, the, your presbytery or two presbyteries banding together for the purpose of uh, getting more specific uh, and, and effective in church planning. So it's a, that happens out of uh, the presbytery. Um, the, but I do, I, obviously I couldn't do it in COVID, but the big, the big thing I do is, you know, I, I, I've mainly gone to Covenant, and believe it or not, although that's the PCA seminary, there are more people, I, graduates that I see that want to be in the EPC from Covenant than, the, I mean, lots of people. And there are growing numbers. I've I got to be careful what I say. So I, but uh, I also have done, so what I do, I go out there and, and they covenant's always nice. I've done the same thing at Westminster. I've even gone to Reformed one time in Orlando, and um, and I just say I'm here to talk about church planning in the West, and I'm I want to host a ministry luncheon. And seminary students tend to be underfed and love pizza, so I just buy a bunch of pizza. It comes right out of our budget, and I and I they come for lunch, and I talk about church planning, 
and the need for it, just some of what I did initially in this talk today and tell some stories and that we need, we're, we're like the Marines. We need the, the few, the proud, and the, the, the brave, and, and, and God uses that. Some people, you know, we talk, I talk a little bit about the need for assessment, but I, seminaries are really recruiting tools, which Tom reminded us of, and it's an excellent recruiting tool. Some of those uh, people that I've, you know, I know a few planners that I actually first met, and, and I, I actually, God gave me um, one of the great things, I guess I'll learn some of this at heaven, that used me to give them a vision for church planning that they have followed through on. So I, I think it's important for me to show up at the seminaries. I have to be careful because I can't spend all my travel budget. I can't, you know, I, I, you know I, so I have to pick and choose when and, and, and just time-wise when I can, when I, and, and then COVID shut that down. I mean, it, that it ended during COVID, so I'm looking to start again and doing these ministry lunches. So what I do, I didn't finish. I, I feed them pizza that day, and then they all, I always have conversations afterwards and say I'm available for appointments to have further conversations tomorrow, you know, between classes. And so I just, I had one, one time at Coven, I had three people in a row. I laughed. They said it with great conviction. Uh, they would I'd get to know them a little bit, and they said, God is calling me to plant a church in Boulder, Colorado. And I'd listen to it, and then next guy would come up. God is, you know, after, and I thought, hmm, God's sending out a lot of signals to people to plant a church. And, and it's like three or four in a row, you know, that told me the exact same thing. It's like, well... Maybe there are going to be a lot of churches in Boulder, but, but it, yeah, it's interesting. So I do that, and, and I, that's, you know, I use seminaries in that way as a recruiting ground. In fact, the, we refer to uh, Christian Kreider, uh, how he got into the church planning world is I did a, 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 a recruiting trip to Westminster in Philly. And, uh, and Christian Kreider showed up. He was a student at Westminster from, from Montana. And the fact that I was from Denver, or then Greeley, and, um, and, and part of the presbytery that he had left to go to seminary, I mean, we just hit it off, and the rest is history. So I, I helped do the demographic work in Missoula. Uh, I, I was there. I was their mentor and gospel coach for all the time they were there. And I still, you know, I still uh, am close friends with the Criders. And so, yeah, so that's... Can I ask a question? Are you trying to plant up where you are? No, we were about two years into the plant. I'm more thinking of the relationship that networks have with seminaries and how successful they are in, you know, you, you, you have a network in Denver. You've got Denver Theological Seminary there. Got really cool church planning movement in St. Louis. We got coming up there. Mm -hmm. But in areas where you don't have a seminary presence, how are you getting churches? How are you getting planters into those places? Yeah, that, that's a. I understand your question better. I didn't understand it exactly. Go ahead, Andrew. I, I would encourage you two ways, brother. First of all, I think seminaries all over the place, and you've heard it from Shane, is that they, you could have somebody at RTS in Orlando that could have a heart for your area of the country. So just because they're not close geographically doesn't mean the guy doesn't have someone there. But I also clearly would see in your region that there are particular needs and particular people groups and particular um, so 
social, economic, other issues that you have to look at. And part of that is we have to start thinking about raising them up before they ever go to seminary so that we're discipling young people to say, God might be calling you to do this. And when they're in a church that exposes them to church planning, when they see the joy of raising up new churches in their area, then to, to think generationally and to begin to say, I'm going to invest in these young people in order that God, I'm, I'm going to tell them, I'm praying that God calls one of y'all to be a church planner in our region. And then to be able to say, we also want to work with you, how we get you through the credentialing process. Mm -hmm. and help there is a degree to where don't just look at today, but look at tomorrow. And that's something that, for your particular case, I would strongly encourage you to. Because to go to New York City, when you grew up in Jackson, Mississippi, is going to be a stretch. So, you, you know, unless you go to like RTS and go, oh, here's a guy that grew up in New York City, loves the city, and all of a sudden he wants to be a church player. Okay, that, God can do that. God can do all his holy will. But, but, but to say I'm going to grow is a, is a, a, a different model. Yeah. Mo you hit on this, Andrew. Thank you. Most of, I'll just ask it as a question. Where do you think the most church planners come from? That's right. <laughs> Who said that? Oh, Cron. Cron, that's out of hand. It's, it's disorder. Point of order. Uh, the, the answer to that is they come out of uh, thriving church plants. Most uh, church planters you know, that have been on the uh, cutting edge of starting a new church and year one, year two, year three, year four, year five, and you know, they get over the hump and it begins to grow and there's excitement around it. God inevitably, some young man or young woman in that congregation gets, catches it. And that's where they come. And, and then they go to seminary. And so a lot of the church, I mean, Richard's church, uh, I mean, uh, how long have you been at? Nine years now here? Thirteen. Gosh, that it can be true. How old am I? 13 years. But in his church, I mean, God, we've seen in that process, we've seen other church planters uh, in the whole um, uh, uh, cross-ethnic or multi-ethnic um, planning movement come out of that. So that, they tend to come from that. And Andrew pointed that out. And church planters can kind of smell out other church planters. So go hang out with the church planters in your presbytery. Encourage them. Hey, let's think right about this next generation. Because the church planters can smell other church planters. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they just kind of have an affinity, and because they they're so needy. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, Richard. Yeah, I want to go back to the question about is it really do network directors really pay for themselves? I think it was a really good mm -hmm. question, and uh, I think maybe Shane didn't feel. Uh, because he is a network director, uh, maybe didn't give a strong enough answer. But I just want to say um, what I've seen, I think the big, biggest mistake, especially in large churches, is this um, thought that we're a big, successful, growing church in the city so we can plant a church. We know what we're doing. And uh, the reality is maybe... But most of those churches 
have a lot of people from that church. It's basically another site that has a pastor and you know, they start with 80 to 100 people. And, and I'm not saying that's wrong, but that's not really church planning. And so the expertise of a network director, there's no way to under, to over-exaggerate the value of that simply because, I mean, and I planted a church out of Second Pres um, and told them they could send no people to me. Uh, so it was not... Um, Smart. Yeah, we didn't have any Second Pres members uh, at our church downtown. But, um, but they invested close to a million dollars over the years in our church. What, I mean, so this is not hypothetical. What, what business, what idiot would invest that kind of money and have no expertise and just some ideas and some zeal? And so, you know, between Shane and myself and, you know, Jeffrey and others in the room, we, we, we probably had 15 church plants between us. And we learned a lot. And I was learning, we did an assessment yesterday of two church planners, and I'm still learning. I mean, I'm still getting new insight into what makes, you know, because every church plan is different, every church planner is different, and, and this is all we think about. We started at downtown church, we have a residency program. I'm learning from my mistakes in a residency program. I want to create a pipeline, but to fill that need, because it's huge. And, but a, a true network director, a true church planner, that's what he's thinking about. That's what he's reading about. He's talking to other church planners. He's constantly learning. And they're, so, I mean, I, yeah, it's, it's really, um, I just can't over, I just can't exaggerate the importance of what Shane is saying. Everything he, the stories he told today, uh, he has gained through a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, a lot of failures, a lot. Just to be able to say it, but I planted all my churches out of shame. We could do a whole seminar on that. Um, so because of that, and I, I have too, and I'm just getting to the bottom of my brokenness. I hope it's the bottom. There's probably got to be bottom. <laughs> There's no bottom. It's called heaven. It's a bottom. That's right. But but so now as we assess younger church planners, we can see it. And we can help them. We're not looking for guys that aren't planning out I mean none of us are in ministry out of pure love for Jesus. Uh, Hopefully that's not a revelation to everybody. But, uh, we, so we have ulterior seven. motives. We, yeah. yeah. We have idols. They're, we have idols. Yeah. And so yeah. I, I just can't, you know, I mean, I can go, I can fight somebody, but you don't want to, you know, send me off to lead an effort in a war because I have no experience in war. I can swing my fist, but I'm going to get demolished, you know. <laughs> and it's the same church planning. Yeah. The devil hates church planning. He does. Hard, hard work. And you need, you need not expertise. You need expertise, but you need people that have done it. And part of that best practices that you're talking about is the ability that a network leader like Shane brings to the table right. to look at a situation and say, you're doing great, right. but I'm looking at what you're doing here, and that's going to cause you a problem. 
And, and, he, yeah. and he's mentioned a number of different areas where he can say, in this mother daughter, this might cause you a problem. Or yeah. this in your life, this might cause you a problem. Yeah. I, I was in a couple of guys, and he loved mercy ministry. I said, that's great. You can have mercy ministry, but if that's all your church plant does, how are you going to survive? His second church wanted to just do mercy ministry. I said, well, go start a mercy ministry, but it's not a church plant. You, how do you do that? And that yeah. balance is something right. that you can only get with all that experience that you're talking about for best right. practices. Right. Okay, we got to end. I appreciate all the attention. I would would say that, you know, Covenant Seminary, they this past year, maybe they were had it planned to roll out before COVID, but they just they just established a church planting track. You can actually go and get your MDiv with an emphasis and focus on all things church planting. So that, and I think it, you know it would be great. If um, if other seminaries would model that, I think we're slow. I just, you know, I've, I've known missiologists um, and seminary professors, but I just have to say that I think um, we're waking up to we live in a post-Christian culture where we need missionaries and church planters are actually missionaries to our culture and they have to be equipped and trained. Uh, just like w- any other missionary, it's it's it's, and we're so we we're seminaries are lagging behind, and you know have missions programs for other things, but they haven't moved forward to have missions programs for training church planters, especially to live in the the context and the cultural moment uh, that we find ourselves in. So we're you know I'm all about trying to help that happen, to help anybody I can. Uh, and my wife's the same way. She's dear. She loves on church planners. She's got tons of experience uh, living with a crazy husband. Uh, yeah. So thank you. It was great to be with you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>